Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This is chapter 46 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 46. There were nabobs in those days, in the flush times, I mean. Every rich strike in the mines created one or two. I called to mind several of these. They were careless, easy-going fellows, as a general thing, and the community at large was as much benefited by their riches as they were themselves, possibly more in some cases. Two cousins, teamsters, did some hauling for a man, and had to take a small segregated portion of a silver mine in lieu of three hundred dollars cash. They gave an outsider a third to open the mine, and they went on teaming, but not long. Ten months afterward the mine was out of debt and paying each owner eight thousand to ten thousand dollars a month, say one hundred thousand a year. One of the earliest nabobs that Nevada was delivered of wore six thousand dollars worth of diamonds in his bosom, and swore he was unhappy because he could not spend his money as fast as he made it. Another Nevada nabob boasted an income that often reached sixteen thousand dollars a month, and he used to love to tell how he had worked in the very mine that yielded it for five dollars a day when he first came to the country. The silver and sagebrush state has knowledge of another of these pets of fortune, lifted from actual poverty to affluence almost in a single night, who was able to offer one hundred thousand dollars for a position of high official distinction shortly afterward, and did offer it, but failed to get it, his politics not being as sound as his bank account. Then there was John Smith. He was a good, honest, kind-hearted soul, born and reared in the lower ranks of life, and miraculously ignorant. He drove a team, and owned a small ranch, a ranch that paid him a comfortable living, for although it yielded but little hay, what little it did yield was worth from two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars in gold per ton in the market. Presently Smith traded a few acres of the ranch for a small undeveloped silver mine in Gold Hill. He opened the mine and built a little unpretending ten-stamp mill. 
Eighteen months afterward, he retired from the hay business, for his mining income had reached a most comfortable figure. Some people said it was $30,000 a month, and others said it was 60000 Smith was very rich, at any rate. And then he went to Europe and traveled, and when he came back he was never tired of telling about the fine hogs he had seen in England, and the gorgeous sheep he had seen in Spain, and the fine cattle he had noticed in the vicinity of Rome. He was full of wonders of the old world, and advised everybody to travel. He said a man never imagined what surprising things there were in the world till he had traveled. One day on board ship the passengers made up a pool of five hundred dollars, which was to be the property of the man who should come nearest to guessing the run of the vessel for the next twenty-four hours. Next day, toward noon, the figures were all in the purser's hands in sealed envelopes. Smith was serene and happy, for he had been bribing the engineer, but another party won the prize. Smith said, "'Here, that won't do. He guessed two miles wider of the mark than I did.' The purser said, "'Mr. Smith, you missed it further than any man on board. We traveled two hundred and eight miles yesterday.' "'Well, sir,' said Smith, "'that's just where I've got you, for I guessed two hundred and nine. If you'll look at my figures again, you'll find a two and two zeros, which stands for two hundred, don't it? And after em you'll find a nine. Two zero zero nine, which stands for two hundred and nine. I reckon I'll take that money, if you please. The Gould and Curie claim comprised twelve hundred feet, and it all belonged originally to the two men whose names it bears. But Mr. Curie owned two-thirds of it, and he said that he sold it out for twenty-five hundred dollars in cash, and an old plug horse that ate up his market value in hay and barley in seventeen days by the watch and he said that Gould sold out for a pair of second-hand government blankets and a bottle of whiskey that killed nine men in three hours, and that an unoffending stranger that smelt the cork was disabled for life. Four years afterward the mine thus disposed of was worth in the San Francisco market seven millions six hundred thousand dollars in gold coin. In the early days a poverty-stricken Mexican who lived in a canyon directly back of Virginia City had a stream of water as large as a man's wrist trickling from the hillside on his premises. The Ophir Company segregated a hundred feet of their mine and traded it to him for the stream of water. The hundred feet proved to be the richest part of the entire mine. Four years after the swap, its market value, including its mill, was one million five hundred thousand dollars. An individual who owned twenty feet in the Ophir mine, before its great riches were revealed to men, traded it for a horse. And a very sorry-looking brute he was, too. A year or so afterward, when Ophir stock went up to three thousand dollars a foot, this man, who had not a cent, used to say he was the most startling example of magnificence and misery the world had ever seen, because he was able to ride a sixty-thousand-dollar horse, yet could not scrape up cash enough to buy a saddle and was obliged to borrow one or ride bareback. He said if fortune were to give him another $60,000 horse it would ruin him. A youth of nineteen, who was a telegraph operator in Virginia on a salary of a hundred dollars a month, and who, when he could not make out German names in the list of San Francisco steamer arrivals, used to ingeniously select and supply substitutes for them out of an old Berlin city directory, made himself rich by watching the mining telegrams that passed through his hands, and buying and selling stocks accordingly, through a friend in San Francisco. 
once when a private dispatch was sent from virginia announcing a rich strike in a prominent mine and advising that the matter be kept secret till a large amount of the stock could be secured he bought forty feet of the stock at twenty dollars a foot and afterwards sold half of it at eight hundred dollars a foot and the rest at double that figure within three months he was worth a hundred and fifty thousand dollars and had resigned his telegraphic position another telegraph operator who had been discharged by the company for divulging the secrets of the office agreed with a moneyed man in san francisco to furnish him the result of a great virginia mining lawsuit within an hour after its private reception by the parties to it in san francisco for this he was to have a large percentage of the profits on purchases and sales made on it by his fellow-conspirator so he went disguised as a teamster to a little wayside telegraph office in the mountains got acquainted with the operator and sat in the office day after day smoking his pipe complaining that his team was fagged out and unable to travel and meantime listening to the dispatches as they passed clicking through the machine from virginia finally the private dispatch announcing the result of the lawsuit sped over the wires and as soon as he heard it he telegraphed his friend in san francisco am tired waiting shall sell the team and go home it was the signal agreed upon the word waiting left out would have signified that the suit had gone the other way the mock teamster's friend picked up a deal of the mining stock at low figures before the news became public and a fortune was the result for a long time after one of the great virginia mines had been incorporated about fifty feet of the original location were still in the hands of a man who had never signed the incorporation papers the stock became very valuable and every effort was made to find this man but he had disappeared once it was heard that he was in new york and one or two speculators went east but failed to find him once the news came that he was in the bermudas and straightway a speculator or two hurried east and sailed for bermuda but he was not there finally he was heard of in mexico and a friend of his a barkeeper on a salary scraped together a little money and sought him out bought his feet for a hundred dollars returned and sold the property for seventy-five thousand dollars but why go on the traditions of silverland are filled with instances like these and i would never get through enumerating them were i to attempt to do it i only desired to give the reader an idea of a peculiarity of the flush times which i could not present so strikingly in any other way and which some mention of was necessary to a realizing comprehension of the time and the country i was personally acquainted with the majority of the nabobs i have referred to and so for old acquaintance sake i have shifted their occupations and experiences around in such a way as to keep the pacific public from recognizing these once notorious men no longer notorious for the majority of them have drifted back into poverty and obscurity again in nevada there used to be current the story of an adventure of two of her nabobs which may or may not have occurred i give it for what it is worth colonel jim had seen somewhat of the world and knew more or less of its ways but Colonel Jack was from the back settlements of the States, had led a life of arduous toil, and had never seen a city. These two, blessed with sudden wealth, projected a visit to New York, Colonel Jack to see the sights, Colonel Jim to guard his unsophistication from misfortune. They reached San Francisco in the night, and sailed in the morning. Arrived in New York, Colonel Jack said, "'I've heard tell of carriages all my life, and now I mean to have a ride in one.' I don't care what it costs. Come along." They stepped out on the sidewalk, 
and Colonel Jim called a stylish barouche, but Colonel Jack said, "'No, sir, none of your cheap John turnouts for me. I'm here to have a good time, and money ain't any object. I mean to have the knobbiest rig that's going. Now here comes the very trick. Stop that yaller one with the pictures on it. Don't you fret. I'll stand all the expenses myself.' So Colonel Jim stopped an empty omnibus, and they got in. Said Colonel Jack, "'Ain't it gay, though?' oh no i reckon not cushions and windows and pictures till you can't rest what would the boys say if they could see us cutting a swell like this in new york by george i wish they could see us then he put his head out of the window and shouted to the driver say johnny this suits me suits yours truly you bet you i want this shebang all day i'm on it old man let him out make him go we'll make it all right with you sonny the driver passed his hand through the strap-hole and tapped for his fare. It was before the gongs came into common use. Colonel Jack took the hand and shook it cordially. He said, "'You twig me, old pard. All right between gents. Smell of that and see how you like it.' And he put a twenty-dollar gold piece in the driver's hand. After a moment the driver said he could not make change. "'Bother the change. Ride it out. Put it in your pocket.' Then to Colonel Jim, with a sounding slap on his thigh, ain't it style though hanged if i don't hire this thing every day for a week the omnibus stopped and a young lady got in colonel jack stared a moment then nudged colonel jim with his elbow don't say a word he whispered let her ride if she wants to gracious there's room enough the young lady got out her portemonnaie and handed her fare to colonel jack what's this for said he give it to the driver please "'Take back your money, madam. We can't allow it. You're welcome to ride here as long as you please. But this shebang's chartered, and we can't let you pay a cent.' The girls shrunk into a corner, bewildered. An old lady with a basket climbed in, and proffered her fare. "'Excuse me,' said Colonel Jack. "'You're perfectly welcome here, madam, but we can't allow you to pay. Set right down there, mum, and don't you be the least uneasy. Make yourself just as free as if you was in your own turnout.' Within two minutes three gentlemen, two fat women, and a couple of children entered. "'Come right along, friends,' said Colonel Jack. "'Don't mind us. This is a free blowout.' Then he whispered to Colonel Jim, "'New York ain't no sociable place, I don't reckon. It ain't no name for it.' He resisted every effort to pass fares to the driver, and made everybody cordially welcome. The situation dawned on the people, and they pocketed their money, and delivered themselves up to covert enjoyment of the episode. Half a dozen more passengers entered. "'Oh, there's plenty of room,' said Colonel Jack. "'Walk right in and make yourselves at home. A blowout ain't worth anything as a blowout unless a body has company.' Then in a whisper to Colonel Jim, "'But ain't these New Yorkers friendly? And ain't they cool about it, too? Icebergs ain't anywhere. I reckon they'd tackle a hearse if it was going their way.' More passengers got in, more yet, and still more. Both seats were filled, and a file of men were standing up, holding on to the cleats overhead. Parties with baskets and bundles were climbing up on the roof. Half-suppressed laughter rippled up from all sides. "'Well, for clean, cool, out-and-out cheek, if this don't bang anything that ever I saw, I'm an injun,' whispered Colonel Jack. A Chinaman crowded his way in. "'I weaken,' said Colonel Jack. "'Hold on, driver. Keep your seats, ladies and gents. Just make yourselves free. Everything's paid for. Driver, rustle these folks around as long as they're a mind to go. Friends of ours, you know.' Take them everywheres, and if you want more money, come to the St. Nicholas, and we'll make it all right. Pleasant journey to you, ladies and gents. Go it just as long as you please. Shan't cost you a cent. The two comrades got out, and Colonel Jack said, Jimmy, 
It's the sociablest place I ever saw. The Chinaman waltzed in as comfortable as anybody. If we'd stayed a while, I reckon we'd had some niggers. George, we'll have to barricade our doors tonight, or some of these ducks will be trying to sleep with us. End of chapter 46This is chapter 47 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 47. Somebody has said that in order to know a community, one must observe the style of its funerals, and know what manner of men they bury with most ceremony. I cannot say which class we buried with most éclat in our flush times, the distinguished public benefactor, or the distinguished rough. Possibly the two chief grades or grand divisions of society honored their illustrious dead about equally, and hence no doubt the philosopher I have quoted from would have needed to see two representative funerals in Virginia before forming his estimate of the people. There was a grand time over Buck Fanshaw when he died. He was a representative citizen. He had killed his man, not in his own quarrel, it is true, but in defense of a stranger unfairly beset by numbers. He had kept a sumptuous saloon. He had been the proprietor of a dashing helpmeet whom he could have discarded without the formality of a divorce. He had held a high position in the fire department, and been a very Warwick in politics. When he died, there was great lamentation throughout the town, but especially in the vast bottom stratum of society. On the inquest, it was shown that Buck Fanshaw, in the delirium of a wasting typhoid fever, had taken arsenic, shot himself through the body, cut his throat, and jumped out of a four-story window and broken his neck. And after due deliberation, the jury, sad and tearful, but with intelligence unblinded by its sorrow, brought in a verdict of death by the visitation of God. What could the world do without juries? Prodigious preparations were made for the funeral. All the vehicles in town were hired, all the saloons put in mourning, all the municipal and fire company flags hung at half-mast, and all the firemen ordered to muster in uniform and bring their machines duly draped in black. Now, let us remark in parenthesis, as all the peoples of the earth had representative adventures in the Silver Land, and as each adventurer had brought the slang of his nation or his locality with him, the combination made the slang of Nevada the richest and the most infinitely varied and copious that had ever existed anywhere in the world, perhaps, except in the mines of California in the early days. Slang was the language of Nevada. It was hard to preach a sermon without it, and be understood. Such phrases as, You bet! Oh, no, I reckon not! No Irish need apply! And a hundred others became so common as to fall from the lips of a speaker unconsciously, and very often, when they did not touch the subject under discussion, and consequently failed to mean anything. After Buck Fanshaw's inquest, a meeting of the short-haired brotherhood was held, for nothing can be done on the Pacific coast without a public meeting and an expression of sentiment. Regretful resolutions were passed, and various committees appointed. Among others, a committee of one was deputed to call on the minister, a fragile, gentle, spiritual new fledgling from an eastern theological seminary, and as yet unacquainted with the ways of the mines. 
the committee man scotty briggs made his visit and in after days it was worth something to hear the minister tell about it scotty was a stalwart rough whose customary suit when on weighty official business like committee work was a fire helmet flaming red flannel shirt patent leather belt with spanner and revolver attached coat hung over arm and pants stuffed into boot tops he formed something of a contrast to the pale theological student it is fair to say of scotty however in passing that he had a warm heart and a strong love for his friends and never entered into a quarrel when he could reasonably keep out of it indeed it was commonly said that whenever one of scotty's fights was investigated it always turned out that it had originally been no affair of his but that out of native good-heartedness he had dropped in of his own accord to help the man who was getting the worst of it he and buck fanshaw were bosom friends for years and had often taken adventurous potluck together on one occasion they had thrown off their coats and taken the weaker side in a fight amongst strangers and after gaining a hard-earned victory turned and found that the men they were helping had deserted early and not only that but had stolen their coats and made off with them but to return to scotty's visit to the minister he was on a sorrowful mission now and his face was the picture of woe being admitted to the presence he sat down before the clergyman placed his fire-hat on an unfinished manuscript sermon under the minister's nose took from it a red silk handkerchief wiped his brow and heaved a sigh of dismal impressiveness explanatory of his business he choked and even shed tears but with an effort he mastered his voice and said in lugubrious tones are you the duck that runs the gospel mill next door am i the uh, pardon me I, I believe i do not understand with another sigh and a half sob scotty rejoined why you see we are in a bit of trouble and the boys thought maybe you would give us a lift if we'd tackle you that is if i've got the rights of it and you are the head clerk of the doxology works next door i am the shepherd in charge of the flock whose fold is next door the witch the spiritual adviser of the little company of believers whose sanctuary adjoins these premises scotty scratched his head reflected a moment and then said you rather hold over me pard i reckon i can't call that hand ante and pass the buck how i, I beg your pardon uh, what did i understand you to say well you've rather got the bulge on me or maybe we've both got the bulge somehow you don't smoke me and i don't smoke you you, you see one of the boys has passed in his checks and we want to give him a good send-off and so the thing i'm on now is to roust out somebody to jerk a little chin music for us and waltz him through handsome my friend i seem to grow more and more bewildered your observations are wholly incomprehensible to me cannot you simplify them in some way at first i thought perhaps i understood you but i grope now would it not expedite matters if you restricted yourself to categorical statements of fact unencumbered with obstructing accumulations of metaphor and allegory another pause and more reflection then said scotty i'll have to pass i judge how you've raised me out pard i still fail to catch your meaning why that last lead of yourn is too many for me that's the idea i can't neither trump nor follow suit the clergyman sank back in his chair perplexed scotty leaned his head on his hand and gave himself up to thought presently his face came up sorrowful but confident i've got it now so as you can savvy he said what we want is a gospel sharp see a what 
gospel sharp parson oh why did you not say so before i am a clergyman a parson now you talk you see my blind and straddle it like a man put it there extending a brawny paw which closed over the minister's small hand and gave it a shake indicative of fraternal sympathy and fervent gratification now we're all right pard let's start afresh don't you mind my snuffling a little because we're in a power trouble you see one of the boys has gone up the flume gone where up the flume throwed up the sponge you understand thrown up the sponge yes uh, kick the bucket ah has departed to that mysterious country from whose born no traveller returns return i reckon not why pard he's dead yes i understand oh you do well i i thought maybe you you might be getting tangled some more yes uh, you see he's dead again again why has he ever been dead before dead before no do you reckon a man has got as many lives as a cat but you bet you he's awful dead now poor old boy and i wish i'd never seen this day i don't want no better friend than buck fanshaw i knowed him by the back but when i know a man and i like him i freeze to him you, you hear me take him all round pard there never was a bullier man in the mines no man ever knowed buck fanshaw to go back on a friend but it's all up you know it's all up it ain't no use they've scooped him scooped him yes death has well 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 we've, we've got to give him up yes indeed it's a kind of a hard world after all ain't it but pard he was a rustler you ought to see him get started once he was a bully boy with a glass eye just spit in his face and give him room according to his strength and it was just beautiful to see him peel and go in he was the worst son of a thief they ever drawed breath pard he was on it he was on it bare an engine on it on what on the shoot on the shoulder on the fight you understand he didn't give a continental for anybody beg your pardon friend uh, for coming so near saying a cuss word but you see i'm on an awful strain in this palaver on account of having to cramp down and draw everything so mild uh, but we've got to give him up there ain't any getting round it i don't reckon now if we can get you to help plant him preach the funeral discourse assist at the obsequies obsequies is good yes that's it that's our little game we are going to get the thing up regardless you know he was always nifty himself and so you bet you his funeral ain't going to be no slouch solid silver door plate on his coffin six plumes on the hearse and a nigger on the box in a biled shirt and a plug hat how's that for high and we'll take care of you pard we'll fix you all right there'll be a carriage for you and whatever you want you just scape out and we'll tend to it we've got a shebang fixed up for you to stand behind in number one's house and don't you be afraid just go in and toot your horn if you don't sell a clam put buck through as bully as you can pard for anybody that knowed him will tell you that he was one of the whitest men that was ever in the mines you can't draw too strong he never could stand it to see things going wrong he's done more to make this town quiet and peaceable than any man in it i've seen him lick four greasers in eleven minutes myself if a thing wanted regulating he warn't a man to go browsing round after somebody to do it but he would prance in and regulate it himself he warn't a catholic scarcely he was down on him his word was no irish need apply but it didn't make no difference about that when it came down to what a man's rights was and so when some roughs jumped the catholic boneyard and started in to stake out town lots in it he went for him and he cleaned em too 
I was their part, and I seen it myself. That was very well indeed. At least the impulse was, whether the act was strictly defensible or not. Had deceased any religious convictions, that is to say, did he feel a dependence upon or acknowledge allegiance to a higher power? More reflection. I reckon you stumped me again, pard. Could you say it over once more, and say it slow? Well, to simplify it somewhat, was he, or rather had he ever been connected with any organization sequestered from secular concerns and devoted to self-sacrifice in the interests of morality? All down but nine. Set him up on the other alley, pard. What did I understand you to say? Why, you're most too many for me, you know. When you get in with your left, I hunt grass every time. Every time you draw, you fill. But I don't seem to have any luck. Uh, let, let's have a new deal. How? Uh, begin again? That's it. Very well. Was he a good man, and— There, I see that. Don't put up another chip till I, I look at my hand. A good man, says you. Pard, it ain't no name for it. He was the best man that ever— Pard, you, you would have doted on that man. He could lamb any galoot of his inches in America. It was him that put down the riot last election before it got a start and everybody said he was the only man that could have done it. He waltzed in with a spanner in one hand and a trumpet in the other, and sent fourteen men home on a shutter in less than three minutes. He had that ride all broke up and prevented nice before anybody ever got a chance to strike a blow. He was always for peace, and he would have peace. He could not stand disturbances. Pard, he was a great loss to this town. It would please the boys if you could chip in something like that and do him justice. Here, once, when the mix got to throwing stones through the Methodist Sunday school windows, Buck Fanshaw, all of his own notion, shut up his saloon and took a couple of six-shooters and mounted guard over the Sunday school. Says he, no Irish need apply. And they didn't. He was the bulliest man in the mountains, pard. He could run faster, jump higher, hit harder, and hold more tanglefoot whiskey without spilling it than any man in seventeen counties. Put that in, pard. It'll please the boys more than anything you could say. And you can say, pard, that he never shook his mother. Never shook his mother? That's it. Any of the boys will tell you so. Well, but why should he shake her? That's what I say. But some people does. Not people of any repute? Well, uh, some that averages pretty so-so. In my opinion, the man that would offer personal violence to his own mother ought to— Cheese it, pard! You've banked your ball clean outside the string. What I was a-driving at was that the he never throwed off on his mother. Don't you see? No, indeedy. He give her a house to live in, and town lots, and plenty of money, and he looked after her and took care of her all the time. And when she was down with the smallpox, I'm damned if he didn't set up nights and nurse her himself. Beg your pardon for saying it, but it hopped out too quick for yours truly. You've treated me like a gentleman, pard, and I ain't the man to hurt your feelings, intentional. I think you're white. I think you're a square man, pard. I like you, and I'll lick any man that don't. I'll lick him till he can't tell himself from a last year's corpse. Put it there. Another fraternal handshake, and exit. The obsequies were all that the boys could desire. Such a marvel of funeral pomp had never been seen in Virginia. The plumed hearse, the dirge-breathing brass bands, the closed marts of business, the flags drooping at half-mast, 
the long, plodding procession of uniformed secret societies, military battalions and fire companies, draped engines, carriages of officials, and citizens in vehicles and on foot, attracted multitudes of spectators on the sidewalks, roofs, and windows, and for years afterward the degree of grandeur attained by any civic display in Virginia was determined by comparison with Buck Fanshaw's funeral. Scotty Briggs, as a pallbearer and a mourner, occupied a prominent place at the funeral, and when the sermon was finished and then the last sentence of the prayer for the dead man's soul ascended, he responded, in a low voice but with feelings, Amen! No Irish need apply. As the bulk of the response was without apparent relevancy, it was probably nothing more than a humble tribute to the memory of the friend that was gone, for, as Scotty had once said, it was his word. Scotty Briggs, in after days, achieved the distinction of becoming the only convert to religion that was ever gathered from the Virginia roughs, and it transpired that the man who had it in him to espouse the quarrel of the weak out of inborn nobility of spirit was no mean timber whereof to construct a Christian. The making him one did not warp his generosity or diminish his courage. On the contrary, it gave intelligent direction to the one and a broader field to the other. If his Sunday-school class progressed faster than the other classes, was it matter for wonder? I think not. He talked to his pioneer small fry in a language they understood. It was my large privilege, a month before he died, to hear him tell the beautiful story of Joseph and his brethren to his class without looking at the book. I leave it to the reader to fancy what it was like, as it fell, riddled with slang, from the lips of that grave, earnest teacher, and was listened to by his little learners with a consuming interest that showed that they were as unconscious as he was that any violence was being done to the sacred proprieties. End of chapter 47 This is chapter 48 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 48. The first twenty-six graves in the Virginia Cemetery were occupied by murdered men. So everybody said, so everybody believed, and so they will always say and believe. The reason why there was so much slaughtering done was that in a new mining district the rough element predominates, and a person is not respected until he has killed his man. That was the very expression used. If an unknown individual arrived, they did not inquire if he was capable, honest, industrious, but had he killed his man. If he had not, he gravitated to his natural and proper position, that of a man of small consequence. If he had, the cordiality of his reception was graduated according to the number of his dead. It was tedious work struggling up to a position of influence with bloodless hands, but when a man came with the blood of half a dozen men on his soul, his worth was recognized at once, and his acquaintance sought. In Nevada, for a time, the lawyer, the editor, the banker, the chief desperado, the chief gambler, and the saloon-keeper occupied the same level in society, and it was the highest. The cheapest and easiest way to become an influential man and be looked up to by the community at large was to stand behind a bar, wear a cluster diamond pin, and sell whiskey. 
I am not sure but that the saloon-keeper held a shade higher rank than any other member of society. His opinion had weight. It was his privilege to say how the election should go. No great movement could succeed without the countenance and direction of the saloon-keepers. It was a high favor when the chief saloon-keeper consented to serve in the legislature or the board of aldermen. Youthful ambition hardly aspired so much to the honors of the law or the army and the navy as to the dignity of proprietorship in a saloon. To be a saloon-keeper and kill a man was to be illustrious. Hence the reader will not be surprised to learn that more than one man was killed in Nevada under hardly the pretext of provocation. So impatient was the slayer to achieve reputation and throw off the galling sense of being held in indifferent repute by his associates. I knew two youths who tried to kill their men for no other reason, and got killed themselves for their pains. "'There goes the man that killed Bill Adams!' was higher praise and a sweeter sound in the ears of this sort of people than any other speech that admiring lips could utter. The men who murdered Virginia's original twenty-six cemetery occupants were never punished. Why? Because Alfred the Great, when he invented trial by jury and knew that he had admirably framed it to secure justice in his age of the world, was not aware that in the nineteenth century the condition of things would be so entirely changed that unless he rose from the grave and altered the jury plan to meet the emergency, it would prove the most ingenious and infallible agency for defeating justice that human wisdom could contrive. For how could he imagine that we simpletons would go on using his jury plan after circumstances had stripped it of its usefulness, any more than he could imagine that we would go on using his candle-clock after we had invented chronometers. In his day news could not travel fast, and hence he could easily find a jury of honest, intelligent men who had not heard of the case they were called to try. But in our day of telegraphs and newspapers his plan compels us to swear in juries composed of fools and rascals, because the system rigidly excludes honest men and men of brains. I remember one of those sorrowful farces, in Virginia, which we call a jury trial. A noted desperado killed Mr. B., a good citizen, in the most wanton and cold-blooded way. Of course the papers were full of it, and all men capable of reading read about it. And of course all men, not deaf and dumb and idiotic, talked about it. A jury list was made out, and Mr. B. L., a prominent banker and a valued citizen, was questioned precisely as he would have been questioned in any court in America. Have you heard of this homicide? Yes. Have you held conversations upon the subject? Yes. Have you formed or expressed opinions about it? Yes. Have you read the newspaper accounts of it? Yes. We do not want you. A minister, intelligent, esteemed, and greatly respected, a merchant of high character and known probity, a mining superintendent of intelligence and unblemished reputation, a quartz-mill owner of excellent standing, were all questioned in the same way, and all set aside. Each said the public talk and the newspaper reports had not so biased his mind but that sworn testimony would overthrow his previously formed opinions, and enable him to render a verdict without prejudice and in accordance with the facts. But of course such men could not be trusted with the case. Ignoramuses alone could mete out unsullied justice. 
when the peremptory challenges were all exhausted, a jury of twelve men was impaneled, a jury who swore they had neither heard, read, talked about, nor expressed an opinion concerning a murder which the very cattle in the corrals, the Indians in the sagebrush, and the stones in the streets were cognizant of. It was a jury composed of two desperadoes, two low beer-house politicians, three barkeepers, two ranchmen who could not read, and three dull, stupid human donkeys. It actually came out afterward that one of these latter thought that incest and arson were the same thing. The verdict rendered by this jury was not guilty. What else could one expect? The jury system puts a ban upon intelligence and honesty, and a premium upon ignorance, stupidity, and perjury. It is a shame that we must continue to use a worthless system because it was good a thousand years ago. In this age, when a gentleman of high social standing, intelligence, and probity swears that testimony given under solemn oath will outweigh, with him, street talk and newspaper reports based upon mere hearsay, he is worth a hundred jurymen who will swear to their own ignorance and stupidity, and justice would be far safer in his hands than in theirs. Why could not the jury law be so altered as to give men of brains and honesty an equal chance with fools and miscreants? Is it right to show the present favoritism to one class of men, and inflict a disability on another, in a land whose boast is that all its citizens are free and equal? I am a candidate for the legislature. I desire to tamper with the jury law. I wish to so alter it as to put a premium on intelligence and character and close the jury-box against idiots, blacklegs, and people who do not read newspapers. But no doubt I shall be defeated. Every effort I make to save the country misses fire." My idea, when I began this chapter, was to say something about desperadoism in the flush times of Nevada, to attempt a portrayal of that era and that land, and leave out the blood and carnage would be like portraying Mormondom and leaving out polygamy. The desperado stalked the streets with a swagger graded according to the number of his homicides, and a nod of the recognition from him was sufficient to make a humble admirer happy for the rest of the day. The deference that was paid to a desperado of wide reputation, and who kept his private graveyard, as the phrase went, was marked and cheerfully accorded. When he moved along the sidewalk in his excessively long-tailed frock-coat, shiny stump-toed boots, and with dainty little slouch-hat tipped over left eye, the small-fry roughs made room for his majesty. When he entered the restaurant, the waiters deserted bankers and merchants to overwhelm him with obsequious service. When he shouldered his way to a bar, the shouldered parties wheeled indignantly, recognized him, and apologized. They got a look in return that froze their marrow and by that time a curled and breast-pinned barkeeper was beaming over the counter, proud of the established acquaintanceship that permitted such a familiar form of speech as, "'How are you, Billy old fell? Glad to see you. What'll you take, the old thing?' The old thing meant his customary drink, of course. The best-known names in the territory of Nevada were those belonging to these long-tailed heroes of the revolver orators, governors, capitalists, and leaders of the legislature enjoyed a degree of fame, but it seemed local and meager when contrasted with the fame of such men as Sam Brown, Jack Williams, 
Billy Mulligan, Farmer Pease, Sugarfoot Mike, Pockmarked Jake, El Dorado Johnny, Jack McNabb, Joe McGee, Jack Harris, Six-Fingered Pete, etc., etc. There was a long list of them. They were brave, reckless men, and traveled with their lives in their hands. To give them their due, they did their killing principally among themselves, and seldom molested peaceable citizens, for they considered it small credit to add to their trophies so cheap a bauble as the death of a man who was not on the shoot, as they phrased it. They killed each other on slight provocation, and hoped and expected to be killed themselves, for they held it almost shame to die otherwise than with their boots on, as they expressed it. I remember an instance of a desperado's contempt for such small game as a private citizen's life. I was taking a late supper in a restaurant one night, with two reporters and a little printer named Brown, for instance. Any name will do. Presently a stranger with a long-tailed coat on came in, and not noticing Brown's hat, which was lying in a chair, sat down on it. Little Brown sprang up and became abusive in a moment. The stranger smiled, smoothed out the hat, and offered it to Brown with profuse apologies couched in caustic sarcasm, and begged Brown not to destroy him. Brown threw off his coat and challenged the man to fight, abused him, threatened him, impeached his courage, and urged and even implored him to fight. And in the meantime the smiling stranger placed himself under our protection in mock distress. But presently he assumed a serious tone, and said, "'Very well, gentlemen. If we must fight, we must, I suppose. But don't rush into danger, and then say I gave you no warning. I am more than a match for all of you when I get started. I will give you proofs, and then, if my friend here still insists, I will try to accommodate him.' The table we were sitting at was about five feet long, and unusually cumbersome and heavy. He asked us to put our hands on the dishes, and hold them in their places a moment. One of them was a large oval dish, with a portly roast on it. Then he sat down, tilted up one end of the table, set two of the legs on his knees, took the end of the table between his teeth, took his hands away, and pulled down with his teeth until the table came up to the level position, dishes and all. He said he could lift a keg of nails with his teeth. He picked up a common glass tumbler and bit a semicircle out of it. Then he opened his bosom and showed us a network of knife and bullet scars, showed us more on his arms and face, and said he believed he had bullets enough in his body to make a pig of lead. He was armed to the teeth. He closed with the remark that he was Mr. <coughs> of Caribou, a celebrated name whereat we shook in our shoes. I would publish the name but for the suspicion that he might come and carve me. He finally inquired if Brown still thirsted for blood. Brown turned the thing over in his mind a moment, and then asked him to supper. With the permission of the reader, I will group together, in the next chapter, some samples of life in our small mountain village in the old days of desperadoism. I was there at the time. The reader will observe peculiarities in our official society, and he will observe also an instance of how in new countries murders breed murders end of chapter forty eight this is chapter forty nine of roughing it 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 49. An extract or two from the newspapers of the day will furnish a photograph that can need no embellishment. Fatal shooting affray. An affray occurred last evening in a billiard saloon on C Street between Deputy Marshal Jack Williams and William Brown, which resulted in the immediate death of the latter. There had been some difficulty between the parties for several months. An inquest was immediately held, and the following testimony adduced. Officer George Birdsell, sworn, says, I was told William Brown was drunk and was looking for Jack Williams. So soon as I heard that, I started for the parties to prevent a collision, went into the billiard saloon, saw Billy Brown running around, saying if anybody had anything against him to show cause, he was talking in a boisterous manner, and Officer Perry took him to the other end of the room to talk to him. Brown came back to me, remarked to me that he thought he was as good as anybody, and knew how to take care of himself. He passed by me and went to the bar. Don't know whether he drank or not. Williams was at the end of the billiard-table, next to the stairway. Brown, after going to the bar, came back and said he was as good as any man in the world. He had then walked out to the end of the first billiard-table from the bar. I moved closer to them, supposing there would be a fight. As Brown drew his pistol, I caught hold of it. He had fired one shot at Williams. Don't know the effect of it caught hold of him with one hand, and took hold of the pistol and turned it up. Think he fired once after I caught hold of the pistol. I wrenched the pistol from him, walked to the end of the billiard-table, and told a party that I had Brown's pistol, and to stop shooting. I think four shots were fired in all. After walking out, Mr. Foster remarked that Brown was shot dead. Oh, there was no excitement about it. He merely remarked the small circumstance. Four months later the following item appeared in the same paper, the Enterprise. In this item, the name of one of the city officers above referred to, Deputy Marshal Jack Williams, occurs again. Robbery and Desperate Affray On Tuesday night a German named Charles Herzl, engineer in a mill at Silver City, came to this place, and visited the hurdy-gurdy house on B Street. The music, dancing, and Teutonic maidens awakened memories of Fatherland, until our German friend was carried away with rapture. He evidently had money, and was spending it freely. Late in the evening Jack Williams and Andy Blessington invited him downstairs to take a cup of coffee. William proposed a game of cards, and went upstairs to procure a deck, but not finding any, returned. On the stairway he met the German, and, drawing his pistol, knocked him down and rifled his pockets of some seventy dollars. Herzl dared give no alarm, as he was told, with a pistol at his head. If he made any noise or exposed them, they would blow his brains out. So effectually was he frightened that he made no complaint until his friends forced him. Yesterday a warrant was issued, but the culprits had disappeared. This efficient city officer, Jack Williams, had the common reputation of being a burglar, a highwayman, and a desperado. It was said that he had several times drawn his revolver and levied money contributions on citizens at dead of night in the public streets of Virginia. Five months after the above item appeared, Williams was assassinated while sitting at a card-table one night. A gun was thrust through the crack of the door, and Williams dropped from his chair, riddled with balls. It was said, at the time, that Williams had been for some time aware that a party of his own sort, desperadoes, 
had sworn away his life, and it was generally believed among the people that William's friends and enemies would make the assassination memorable, and useful, too, by a wholesale destruction of each other. It did not so happen, but still times were not dull during the next twenty-four hours, for within that time a woman was killed by a pistol-shot, a man was brained with a slung-shot, and a man named Reeder was also disposed of permanently. Some matters in the Enterprise account of the killing of Reeder are worth noting, especially the accommodating complacence of a Virginia Justice of the Peace. The italics in the following narrative are mine more cutting and shooting the devil seems to have again broken loose in our town pistols and guns explode and knives gleam in our streets as in early times when there has been a long season of quiet people are slow to wet their hands in blood but once blood is spilled cutting and shooting come easy night before last jack williams was assassinated and yesterday forenoon we had more bloody work growing out of the killing of williams and on the same street in which he met his death. It appears that Tom Reeder, a friend of Williams, and George Gumbert were talking, at the meat-market of the latter, about the killing of Williams the previous night, when Reeder said it was a most cowardly act to shoot a man in such a way, giving him no show. Gumbert said that Williams had as good a show as he gave Billy Brown, meaning the man killed by Williams last March. Reeder said it was a damned lie that Williams had no show at all. At this, Gumbert drew a knife and stabbed Reeder, cutting him in two places in the back. One stroke of the knife cut into the sleeve of Reeder's coat, and passed downward in a slanting direction through his clothing, and entered his body at the small of the back. Another blow struck more squarely, and made a much more dangerous wound. Gumbert gave himself up to the officers of justice, and was shortly after discharged by Justice Atwill, on his own recognizance, to appear for trial at six o'clock in the evening. In the meantime, Reeder had been taken into the office of Dr. Owens, where his wounds were properly dressed. One of his wounds was considered quite dangerous, and it was thought by many that it would prove fatal. But, being considerably under the influence of liquor, Reeder did not feel his wounds as he otherwise would, and he got up and went into the street. He went to the meat-market and renewed his quarrel with Gumbert, threatening his life. Friends tried to interfere to put a stop to the quarrel and get the parties away from each other. In the fashion saloon, Reeder made threats against the life of Gumbert, saying he would kill him, and it is said that he requested the officers not to arrest Gumbert, as he intended to kill him. After these threats, Gumbert went off and procured a double-barreled shotgun, loaded with buckshot or revolver balls, and went after Reeder. Two or three persons were assisting him along the street, trying to get him home, and had him just in front of the store of Klopstock and Harris, when Gumbert came across toward him from the opposite side of the street with his gun. He came up within about ten or fifteen feet of Reeder, and called out to those with him to look out and get out of the way, and they had only time to heed the warning when he fired. Reeder was at the time attempting to screen himself behind a large cask, which stood against the awning-post of Klopstock and Harris's store, but some of the balls took effect in the lower part of his breast, and he reeled around forward and fell in front of the cask. Gumbert then raised his gun and fired the second barrel, which missed Reeder and entered the ground. At the time that this occurred, there were a great many persons on the street in the vicinity, and a number of them called out to Gumbert when they saw him raise his gun to, "'Hold on, and don't shoot!' The cutting took place about ten o'clock, and the shooting about twelve. 
After the shooting, the street was instantly crowded with the inhabitants of that part of the town, some appearing much excited and laughing, declaring that it looked like the good old times of sixty. Marshal Perry and Officer Birdsell were near when the shooting occurred, and Gumbert was immediately arrested and his gun taken from him when he was marched off to jail. Many persons who were attracted to the spot where this bloody work had just taken place looked bewildered and seemed to be asking themselves what was to happen next, appearing in doubt as to whether the killing mania had reached its climax, or whether we were to turn in and have a grand killing spell, shooting whoever might have given us offence. It was whispered around that it was not all over yet. Five or six more were to be killed before night. Reader was taken to the Virginia City Hotel, and doctors called in to examine his wounds. They found that two or three balls had entered his right side. One of them appeared to have passed through the substance of the lungs, while another passed into the liver. Two balls were also found to have struck one of his legs. As some of the balls struck the cask, the wounds in the reader's leg were probably from these, glancing downward, so they might have been caused by the second shot fired. After being shot, Reeder said, when he got on his feet, smiling as he spoke, "'It will take better shooting than that to kill me.' The doctors consider it almost impossible for him to recover, but as he has an excellent constitution, he may survive, notwithstanding the number and dangerous character of the wounds he has received. The town appears to be perfectly quiet at present, as though the late stormy times had cleared our moral atmosphere. But who can tell in what quarter clouds are lowering or plots ripening. Reader, or at least what was left of him, survived his wounds two days. Nothing was ever done with Gumbert. Trial by jury is the palladium of our liberties. I do not know what a palladium is, having never seen a palladium, but it is a good thing, no doubt, at any rate. Not less than a hundred men have been murdered in Nevada. Perhaps I would be within bounds if I said three hundred and as far as I can learn, only two persons have suffered the death penalty there. However, four or five who had no money and no political influence have been punished by imprisonment. One languished in prison as much as eight months, I think. However, I do not desire to be extravagant. It may have been less. However, one prophecy was verified at any rate. It was asserted by the desperados that one of their brethren, Joe McGee, a special policeman, was known to be the conspirator chosen by lot to assassinate Williams, and they also asserted that doom had been pronounced against McGee, and that he would be assassinated in exactly the same manner that had been adopted for the destruction of Williams, a prophecy which came true a year later. After twelve months of distress, for McGee saw a fancied assassin in every man that approached him, he made the last of many efforts to get out of the country unwatched. He went to Carson and sat down in a saloon to wait for the stage. It would leave at four in the morning. But as the night waned and the crowd thinned, he grew uneasy, and told the barkeeper that assassins were on his track. The barkeeper told him to stay in the middle of the room then, and not go near the door, or the window by the stove but a fatal fascination seduced him to the neighborhood of the stove every now and then, and repeatedly the barkeeper brought him back to the middle of the room and warned him to remain there. But he could not. At three in the morning he again returned to the stove and sat down by a stranger. Before the barkeeper could get to him with another warning whisper, someone outside fired through the window and riddled McGee's breast with slugs, killing him almost instantly. By the same discharge, 
the stranger at McGee's side also received attentions which proved fatal in the course of two or three days. End of chapter 49This is Chapter 50 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 50. These murder and jury statistics remind me of a certain very extraordinary trial and execution of twenty years ago. It is a scrap of history familiar to all old Californians and worthy to be known by other peoples of the earth that love simple, straightforward justice, unencumbered with nonsense. I would apologize for this digression, but for the fact that the information I am about to offer is apology enough in itself. And since I digress constantly anyhow, perhaps it is as well to eschew apologies altogether, and thus prevent their growing irksome. Captain Ned Blakely that name will answer as well as any other fictitious one, for he was still with the living at last accounts, and may not desire to be famous, sailed ships out of the harbor of San Francisco for many years. He was a stalwart, warm-hearted, eagle-eyed veteran, who had been a sailor nearly fifty years, a sailor from early boyhood. He was a rough, honest creature, full of pluck, and just as full of hard-headed simplicity, too. He hated trifling conventionalities. Business was the word with him. He had all a sailor's vindictiveness against the quips and quirks of the law, and steadfastly believed that the first and last aim and object of the law and lawyers was to defeat justice. He sailed for the Chincha Islands in command of a guano ship. He had a fine crew, but his negro mate was his pet. On him he had for years lavished his admiration and esteem. It was Captain Ned's first voyage to the Chinchas, but his fame had gone before him. The fame of being a man who would fight at the dropping of a handkerchief, when imposed upon, and would stand no nonsense. It was a fame well earned. Arrived in the islands, he found that the staple of conversation was the exploits of one Bill Noakes, a bully, the mate of a trading ship. This man had created a small reign of terror there. At nine o'clock at night, Captain Ned, all alone, was pacing his deck in the starlight. A form ascended the side and approached him. Captain Ned said, "'Who goes there?' "'I'm Bill Noakes, the best man in the islands. What do you want aboard this ship? I've heard of Captain Ned Blakely, and one of us is a better man than t'other. I'll know which before I go ashore. You've come to the right shop. I'm your man. I'll learn you to come aboard this ship without an invite.' He seized Noakes, backed him against the mainmast, pounded his face to a pulp, and then threw him overboard. Noakes was not convinced. He returned the next night, got the pulp renewed, and went overboard head first, as before. He was satisfied. A week after this, while Noakes was carousing with a sailor crowd on shore at noonday, Captain Ned's colored mate came along, and Noakes tried to pick a quarrel with him. The negro evaded the trap and tried to get away. Noakes followed him up. The negro began to run. Noakes fired on him with a revolver and killed him. Half a dozen sea-captains witnessed the whole affair. Noakes retreated to the small after-cabin of his ship, with two other bullies, and gave out that death would be the portion of any man that intruded there. There was no attempt made to follow the villains. There was no disposition to do it, and indeed very little thought of such an enterprise. There were no courts and no officers. There was no government. 
The islands belonged to Peru, and Peru was far away. She had no official representative on the ground, and neither had any other nation. However, Captain Ned was not perplexing his head about such things. They concerned him not. He was boiling with rage and furious for justice. At nine o'clock at night he loaded a double-barreled gun with slugs, fished out a pair of handcuffs, got a ship's lantern, summoned his quartermaster, and went ashore. He said, "'Do you see that ship there at the dock?' "'Aye, aye, sir. It's the Venus.' "'Aye, aye, sir. You—you you know me.' "'Aye, aye, sir. Very well, then. Take the lantern, carry it just under your chin. I'll walk behind you and rest this gun-barrel on your shoulder, pointing forward, so. Keep your lantern well up, so's I can see things ahead of you. Good. I'm going to march in on Noakes and take him and jug the other chaps. If you flinch, well, you know me. Aye, aye, sir. In this order they filed aboard softly, arrived at Noakes' den. The quartermaster pushed the door open, and the lantern revealed the three desperados sitting on the floor. Captain Ned said, "'I'm Ned Blakely. I've got you under fire. Don't you move without orders, any of you. You two kneel down in the corner, faces to the wall. Now! Bill Noakes, put these handcuffs on. Now, come up close. Quartermaster, fasten them. All right. Don't stir, sir. Quartermaster, put the key in the outside of the door. Now, men, I'm going to lock you two in. And if you try to burst through this door, well, you've heard of me. Bill Noakes, fall in ahead, and march. All set. Quartermaster, lock the door. Noakes spent the night on board Blakely's ship, a prisoner under strict guard. Early in the morning Captain Ned called in all the sea captains in the harbor and invited them, with nautical ceremony, to be present on board his ship at nine o'clock to witness the hanging of Noakes at the yard-arm. What? The man has not been tried. Of course he hasn't. But didn't he kill the nigger? Certainly he did. But you are not thinking of hanging him without a trial. Trial? What do I want to try him for, if he killed the nigger? Oh, Captain Ned, this will never do. Think how it will sound. Sound be hanged. Didn't he kill the nigger? Certainly. Certainly, Captain Ned. Nobody denies that. But, well, then I'm going to hang him, that's all. Everybody I've talked to talks just the same way you do. Everybody says he killed the nigger, everybody knows he killed the nigger, and yet every lubber of you wants him tried for it. I don't understand such bloody foolishness as that. Tried? Mind you, I don't object to trying him, if it's got to be done to give satisfaction. And I'll be there, and chip in and help, too. But put it off till afternoon. Put it off till afternoon, or I'll have my hands middling full till after the burying. Why, what do you mean? Are you going to hang him anyhow, and try him afterward? Didn't I say I was going to hang him? I never saw such people as you. What's the difference? You ask a favor, and then you ain't satisfied when you get it. Before or after all's one. You know how the trial will go. He killed the nigger. Say, I must be going. If your mate would like to come to the hanging, fetch him along. I like him. There was a stir in the camp. The captains came in a body and pleaded with Captain Ned not to do this rash thing. They promised that they would create a court composed of captains of the best character, they would impanel a jury, they would conduct everything in a way becoming the serious nature of the business in hand, and give the case an impartial hearing and the accused a fair trial. And they said it would be murder, and punishable by the American courts if he persisted and hung the accused on his ship. They pleaded hard. Captain Ned said, "'Gentlemen, I'm not stubborn, and I'm not unreasonable. I'm always willing to do just as near right as I can. How long will it take?' "'Probably only a little while.' "'And can I take him up the shore, and hang him as soon as you are done?' 
If he is proven guilty, he shall be hanged without unnecessary delay. If he's proven guilty, great Neptune, ain't he guilty? This beats my time. Why, you all know he's guilty. But at last they satisfied him that they were projecting nothing underhanded. Then he said, Well, all right. You go on and try him, and I'll go down and overhaul his conscience and prepare him to go, like enough he needs it, and I don't want to send him off without a show for hereafter. This was another obstacle. They finally convinced him that it was necessary to have the accused in court. Then they said they would send a guard to bring him. No, sir, I prefer to fetch him myself. He don't get out of my hands. Besides, I've got to go to the ship to get a rope anyway. The court assembled with due ceremony, empaneled a jury, and presently Captain Ned entered, leading the prisoner with one hand and carrying a Bible and a rope in the other. He seated himself by the side of his captive and told the court to up anchor and make sail. Then he turned a searching eye on the jury and detected Noakes' friends, the two bullies. He strode over and said to them confidentially, "'You're here to interfere, you see. Now you vote right, do you hear? Or else there'll be a double-barreled inquest here when this trial's off, and your remainders will go home in a couple of baskets.' The caution was not without fruit. The jury was a unit. The verdict? Guilty. Captain Ned sprung to his feet and said, "'Come along. You're my meat now, my lad, anyway. Gentlemen, you've done yourselves proud. I invite you all to come and see that I do it all straight. Follow me to the canyon, a mile above here.' The court informed him that a sheriff had been appointed to do the hanging, and Captain Ned's patience was at an end. His wrath was boundless. The subject of a sheriff was judiciously dropped. When the crowd arrived at the canyon, Captain Ned climbed a tree and arranged the halter then came down and noosed his man. He opened his Bible and laid aside his hat. Selecting a chapter at random, he read it through, in a deep bass voice, and with sincere solemnity. Then he said, "'Lad, you are about to go aloft and give an account of yourself, and the lighter a man's manifest is, as far as sin's concerned, the better for him. Make a clean breast, man, and carry a log with you that'll bear inspection. You killed the nigger?' no reply. A long pause. The captain read another chapter, pausing from time to time to impress the effect. Then he talked an earnest, persuasive sermon to him, and ended by repeating the question, "'Did you kill the nigger?' No reply, other than a malignant scowl. The captain now read the first and second chapters of Genesis with deep feeling, paused a moment, closed the book reverently, and said with a perceptible savor of satisfaction, "'There!' four chapters. There's few that would have took the pains with you that I have." Then he swung up the condemned and made the rope fast, stood by and timed him half an hour with his watch, and then delivered the body to the court. A little after, as he stood contemplating the motionless figure, a doubt came into his face. Evidently he felt a twinge of conscience, a misgiving, and he said with a sigh, "'Well, perhaps I ought to burn him, maybe, but I was trying to do for the best.' When the history of this affair reached California—it was in the early days—it made a deal of talk, but did not diminish the captain's popularity in any degree. It increased it, indeed. California had a population then that inflicted justice after a fashion that was simplicity and primitiveness itself, and could therefore admire appreciatively when the same fashion was followed elsewhere. End of chapter 50 This is chapter 51 of Roughing It. 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 51 Vice flourished luxuriantly during the heyday of our flush times. The saloons were overburdened with custom. So were the police courts, the gambling dens, the brothels, and the jails, unfailing signs of high prosperity in a mining region, in any region for that matter. Is it not so? A crowded police court docket is the surest of all signs that trade is brisk and money plenty. Still, there is one other sign. It comes last. But when it does come, it establishes beyond cavil that the flush times are at the flood. This is the birth of the literary paper. The weekly Occidental, devoted to literature, made its appearance in Virginia. All the literary people were engaged to write for it. Mr. F. was to edit it. He was a felicitous skirmisher with a pen, and a man who could say happy things in a crisp, neat way. Once, while editor of the Union, he had disposed of a labored, incoherent two-column attack made upon him by a contemporary with a single line which at first glance seemed to contain a solemn and tremendous compliment, viz. The logic of our adversary resembles the peace of God, and left it to the reader's memory and afterthought to invest the remark with another and more different meaning by supplying for himself and at his own leisure the rest of the scripture, in that it passeth understanding. He once said of a little, half-starved, wayside community that had no subsistence except what they could get by preying upon chance passengers who stopped over with them a day when travelling by the overland stage, that in their church service they had altered the Lord's Prayer to read, Give us this day our daily stranger. We expected great things of the Occidental. Of course, it would not get along without an original novel, and so we made arrangements to hurl into the work the full strength of the company. Mrs. F. was an able romancist of the ineffable school. I know no other word to apply to a school whose heroes are all dainty and all perfect. She wrote the opening chapter, and introduced a lovely blonde simpleton who talked nothing but pearls and poetry, and who was virtuous to the verge of eccentricity. She also introduced a young French duke of aggravated refinement, in love with a blonde. Mr. F. followed next week, with a brilliant lawyer who set about getting the duke's estates into trouble, and a sparkling young lady of high society who fell to fascinating the duke and impairing the appetite of the blonde. Mr. D., a dark and bloody editor of one of the dailies, followed Mr. F. the third week introducing a mysterious Rosicrucian who transmuted metals, held consultations with the devil in a cave at dead of night, and cast the horoscope of the several heroes and heroines in such a way as to provide plenty of trouble for their future careers, and breed a solemn and awful public interest in the novel. He also introduced a cloaked and masked melodramatic miscreant, put him on a salary, and set him on the midnight track of the duke with a poisoned dagger. He also created an Irish coachman with a rich brogue, and placed him in the service of the society young lady with an ulterior mission to carry the billet doux to the duke. About this time there arrived in Virginia a dissolute stranger with a literary turn of mind. 
rather seedy he was, but very quiet and unassuming, almost diffident indeed. He was so gentle, and his manners were so pleasing and kindly, whether he was sober or intoxicated, that he made friends of all who came in contact with him. He applied for literary work, offered conclusive evidence that he wielded an easy and practiced pen, and so Mr. F. engaged him at once to help write the novel. His chapter was to follow Mr. D.'s, and mine was to come next. Now what does this fellow do but go off and get drunk, and then proceed to his quarters and set to work with his imagination in a state of chaos, and that chaos in a condition of extravagant activity? The result may be guessed. He scanned the chapters of his predecessors, found plenty of heroes and heroines already created, and was satisfied with them. He decided to introduce no more with all the confidence that whiskey inspires and all the easy complacency it gives to its servant he then launched himself lovingly into his work he married the coachman to the society young lady for the sake of the scandal married the duke to the blonde stepmother for the sake of the sensation stopped the desperado's salary created a misunderstanding between the devil and the rosicrucian threw the duke's property into the wicked lawyer's hands made the lawyer's upbraiding conscience drive him to drink, thence to delirium tremens, thence to suicide, broke the coachman's neck, let his widow succumb to contumely, neglect, poverty, and consumption, caused the blonde to drown herself, leaving her clothes on the bank with the customary note pinned to them for giving the duke and hoping he would be happy, revealed to the duke, by means of the usual strawberry mark on left arm, that he had married his own long-lost mother, and destroyed his long-lost sister, instituted the proper and necessary suicide of the duke and the duchess in order to compass poetical justice, opened the earth and let the Rosicrucian through, accompanied with the accustomed smoke and thunder and smell of brimstone, and finished with the promise that in the next chapter, after holding a general inquest, he would take up the surviving character of the novel and tell what became of the devil. It read with singular smoothness, and with a dead earnestness that was funny enough to suffocate a body. But there was war when it came in. The other novelists were furious. The mild stranger, not yet more than half sober, stood there, under a scathing fire of vituperation, meek and bewildered, looking from one to another of his assailants, and wondering what he could have done to invoke such a storm. When a lull came at last, he said his say, gently and appealingly, said he did not rightly remember what he had written, but was sure he had tried to do the best he could, and knew his object had been to make the novel not only pleasant and plausible, but instructive, and the bombardment began again. The novelists assailed his ill-chosen adjectives, and demolished them with a storm of denunciation and ridicule, and so the siege went on. Every time the stranger tried to appease the enemy he only made matters worse. Finally he offered to rewrite the chapter. This arrested hostilities. The indignation gradually quieted down, peace reigned again, and the sufferer retired in safety, and got him to his own citadel. But on the way thither the evil angel tempted him, and he got drunk again, and again his imagination went mad. He led the heroes and heroines a wilder dance than before, and yet all through it ran the same convincing air of honesty and earnestness that had marked his first work. He got the characters into the most extraordinary situations, put them through the most surprising performances, and made them talk the strangest talk. But the chapter cannot be described. 
It was symmetrically crazy, it was artistically absurd, and it had explanatory footnotes that were fully as curious as the text. I remember one of the situations, and will offer it as an example of the whole. He altered the character of the brilliant lawyer, and made him a great-hearted, splendid fellow, gave him fame and riches, and set his age at thirty-three years. Then he made the blonde discover, through the help of the Rosicrucian and the melodramatic miscreant, that while the Duke loved her money ardently and wanted it, he secretly felt a sort of leaning toward the society young lady. Stung to the quick, she tore her affections from him, and bestowed them with tenfold power upon the lawyer, who responded with consuming zeal. But the parents would none of it. What they wanted in the family was a duke, and a duke they were determined to have, though they confessed that next to the duke the lawyer had their preference. Necessarily the blonde now went into a decline. The parents were alarmed. They pleaded with her to marry the duke, but she steadfastly refused, and pined on. Then they laid a plan. They told her to wait a year and a day, and if at the end of that time she still felt that she could not marry the duke, she might marry the lawyer with their full consent. The result was as they had foreseen. Gladness came again, and the flush of returning health. Then the parents took the next step in their scheme. They had the family physician recommend a long sea-voyage and much land-travel for the thorough restoration of the blonde's strength, and they invited the duke to be of the party. They judged that the duke's constant presence and the lawyer's protracted absence would do the rest, for they did not invite the lawyer. So they set sail in a steamer for America, and the third day out, when their sea-sickness called truce and permitted them to take their first meal at the public table, behold, there sat the lawyer. The duke and party made the best of an awkward situation. The voyage progressed, and the vessel neared America. But by and by, two hundred miles off New Bedford, the ship took fire. She burned to the water's edge. Of all her crew and passengers only thirty were saved. They floated about the sea half an afternoon and all night long. Among them were our friends. The lawyer, by superhuman exertions, had saved the blonde and her parents, swimming back and forth two hundred yards and bringing one each time, the girl first. The duke had saved himself. In the morning two whale-ships arrived on the scene and sent their boats. The weather was stormy, and the embarkation was attended with much confusion and excitement. The lawyer did his duty like a man, helped his exhausted and insensible blonde, her parents, and some others into a boat. The duke helped himself in. Then the child fell overboard at the other end of the raft, and the lawyer rushed thither and helped half a dozen people fish it out, under the stimulus of its mother's screams. Then he ran back, a few seconds too late. The blonde's boat was under way. So he had to take the other boat, and go to the other ship. The storm increased, and drove the vessels out of sight of each other, drove them whither it would. When it calmed, at the end of three days, the blonde ship was seven hundred miles north of Boston, and the other about seven hundred south of that port. The blonde's captain was bound on a whaling cruise in the North Atlantic, and could not go back such a distance or make a port without orders, such being nautical law. The lawyer's captain was to cruise in the North Pacific, and he could not go back or make port without orders. All the lawyer's money and baggage were in the blonde's boat, and went to the blonde's ship, so his captain made him work his passage as a common sailor. 
when both ships had been cruising nearly a year, the one was off the coast of Greenland, and the other in Bering Strait. The blonde had long ago been well-nigh persuaded that her lawyer had been washed overboard and lost just before the whale-ships reached the raft, and now, under the pleadings of her parents and the duke, she was at last beginning to nerve herself for the doom of the covenant, and prepare for the hated marriage. But she would not yield a day before the date set. The weeks dragged on, the time narrowed. Orders were given to deck the ship for the wedding, a wedding at sea among icebergs and walruses. Five days more, and all would be over. So the blonde reflected, with a sigh and a tear. Oh, where was her true love, and why, why did he not come and save her? At that moment he was lifting his harpoon to strike a whale in Bering Strait, five thousand miles away, by the way of the Arctic Ocean, or twenty thousand by the way of the Horn. That was the reason. He struck, but not with perfect aim. His foot slipped, and he fell in the whale's mouth, and went down his throat. He was insensible five days. Then he came to himself and heard voices. Daylight was streaming through a hole cut in the whale's roof. He climbed out, and astonished the sailors who were hoisting blubber up the ship's side. He recognized the vessel, flew aboard, surprised the wedding party at the altar, and exclaimed, "'Stop the proceedings! I'm here! Come to my arms, my own!' There were footnotes to this extravagant piece of literature, wherein the author endeavored to show that the whole thing was within the possibilities. He said he got the incident of the whale traveling from Bering Strait to the coast of Greenland, five thousand miles in five days, through the Arctic Ocean, from Charles Reed's Love Me, Little Love Me Long, and considered that that established the fact that the thing could be done, and he instanced Jonah's adventure as proof that a man could live in a whale's belly and added that if a preacher could stand it three days, a lawyer could surely stand it five. There was a fiercer storm than ever in the editorial sanctum now, and the stranger was peremptorily discharged, and his manuscript flung at his head. But he had already delayed things so much that there was not time for someone else to rewrite the chapter, and so the paper came out without any novel in it. It was but a feeble, struggling, stupid journal, and the absence of the novel probably shook public confidence. At any rate, before the first side of the next issue went to press, the weekly Occidental died as peacefully as an infant. An effort was made to resurrect it, with the proposed advantage of telling a new title, and Mr. F. said that the Phoenix would be just the name for it, because it would give the idea of a resurrection from its dead ashes in a new and undreamed-of condition of splendor but some low-priced smarty on one of the dailies suggested that we call it the Lazarus, and inasmuch as the people were not profound in scriptural matters, but thought the resurrected Lazarus and the dilapidated mendicant that begged in the rich man's gateway were one and the same person, the name became the laughing-stock of the town, and killed the paper for good and all. I was sorry enough, for I was very proud of being connected with a literary paper, prouder than I have ever been of anything since, perhaps. I had written some rhymes for it, poetry I considered it, and it was a great grief to me that the production was on the first side of the issue that was not completed, and hence did not see the light. But time brings its revenges. I can put it in here. It will answer in place of a tear dropped to the memory of the lost Occidental. The idea, not the chief idea, but the vehicle that bears it, was probably suggested by the old song called The Raging Canal, but I cannot remember now. 
I do remember, though, that at that time I thought my doggerel was one of the ablest poems of the age. THE AGED PILOT MAN On the Erie Canal it was, all on a summer's day, I sailed forth with my parents, far away to Albany. From out the clouds at noon that day there came a dreadful storm that piled the billows high about and filled us with alarm. A man came rushing from a house, saying, "'Snub up your boat, I pray,' the customary canal technicality for tie-up. "'Snub up your boat, snub up, alas, snub up while yet you may.' Our captain cast one glance astern, then forward glanced he, and said, "'My wife and little ones I never more shall see.' Said Dollinger, the pilot-man, in noble words but few, "'Fear not, but lean on Dollinger, and he will fetch you through.' The boat drove on, the frightened mules tore through the rain and wind, and bravely still in danger's post the whip-boy strode behind. "'Come board, come board!' the captain cried, nor tempt so wild a storm. But still the raging mules advanced, and still the boy strode on. Then said the captain to us all, "'Alas, tis plain to me, the greater danger is not there, but here upon the sea.' So let us strive while life remains to save all souls on board, and then if die at last we must, let—I cannot speak the word," said Dollinger the pilot-man, towering above the crew, "'Fear not, but trust in Dollinger, and he will fetch you through.' "'Low bridge! Low bridge!' all heads went down. The laboring bark sped on. A mill we passed, we passed a church, hamlets and fields of corn and all the world came out to sea and chased along the shore, crying, Alas, alas, the sheeted rain, the wind, the tempest roar, alas, the gallant ship and crew, can nothing help them more? And from our deck sad eyes looked out across the stormy scene, the tossing wake of billows aft, the bending forest green, the chickens sheltered under carts, in lee of barn the cows, the scurrying swine with straw in mouth, the wild spray from our bows. She balances, she wavers, now let her go about. If she misses stays and broaches too, we're all— Then, with a shout, Hooray, hooray, vast belay, take in more sail, Lord, what a gale! Ho, boy, haul taut on the hind mule's tail! Ho, lighten ship, ho, man the pump, ho, hostler, heave the lead! A quarter three, tis shoaling fast, three feet large, three feet three feet scant i cried in fright oh is there no retreat said dollinger the pilot-man as on the vessel flew fear not but trust in dollinger and he will fetch you through a panic struck the bravest hearts the boldest cheek turned pale for plain to all this shoaling said a leak had burst the ditch's bed and straight as bolt from crossbow sped, our ship swept on with shoaling lead before the fearful gale. Sever the tow-lines! Cripple the mules! Too late! There comes a shock! Another length, and the fated craft would have swum in the saving lock. Then gathered together the shipwrecked crew, and took one last embrace, while sorrowful tears from despairing eyes ran down each hopeless face and some did think of their little ones whom they never more might see, and others of waiting wives at home, and mothers that grieved would be. But of all the children of misery there on that poor sinking frame but one spake words of hope and faith, and I worshipped as they came, 
said Dollinger, the pilot-man, O brave heart, strong and true, Fear not, but trust in Dollinger, for he will fetch you through. Lo, scarce the words have passed his lips, the dauntless prophet saith, when every soul about him seeth a wonder crown his faith. And count ye all, both great and small, as numbered with the dead, for mariner, for forty year, on Erie, boy and man, I never yet saw such a storm, or want with it began. So overboard a keg of nails, and anvils three we threw, likewise four bales of gunny-sacks, two hundred pounds of glue, two sacks of corn, four ditto wheat, a box of books, a cow, a violin, Lord Byron's work, a rip-saw, and a sow. A curve, a curve, the dangers grow, labboard, starboard, steady so, hard a port, doll, hallam a lee, haul the head mule, the aft one gee, luff, bring her to the wind. For straight a farmer brought a plank, mysteriously inspired, and laying it unto the ship, in silent awe retired. Then every sufferer stood amazed, that pilot-man before, a moment stood, then wondering turned, and speechless walked ashore. End of chapter 51「is Chapter fifty two of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter fifty two. Since I desire in this chapter to say an instructive word or two about the silver mines, the reader may take this fair warning and skip if he chooses. The year 1863 was perhaps the very top blossom and culmination of the flush times. Virginia swarmed with men and vehicles to that degree that the place looked like a very hive, that is, when one's vision could pierce through the thick fog of alkali dust that was generally blowing in summer. I will say, concerning this dust, that if you drove ten miles through it, you and your horses would be coated with it a sixteenth of an inch thick, and present an outside appearance that was a uniform pale yellow color, and your buggy would have three inches of dust in it, thrown there by the wheels. The delicate scales used by the assayers were enclosed in glass cases, intended to be air-tight, and yet some of this dust was so impalpable, and so invisibly fine, that it would get in, somehow, and impair the accuracy of those scales. Speculation ran riot, and yet there was a world of substantial business going on, too. All freights were brought over the mountains from California, one hundred and fifty miles, by pack-train partly, and partly in huge wagons drawn by such long mule-teams that each team amounted to a procession, and it did seem, sometimes, that the grand combined procession of animals stretched unbroken from Virginia to California. Its long route was traceable, clear across the deserts of the territory, by the writhing serpent of dust it lifted up. By these wagons, freights over that hundred and fifty miles were two hundred dollars a ton for small lots, same price for all express matter brought by stage, and one hundred dollars a ton for full loads. One Virginia firm received one hundred tons of freight a month, and paid ten thousand dollars a month freightage. In the winter the freights were much higher. All the bullion was shipped in bars by stage to San Francisco, 
A bar was usually about twice the size of a pig of lead, and contained from fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars according to the amount of gold mixed with the silver, and the freight on it, when the shipment was large, was one and a quarter per cent of its intrinsic value. So the freight on these bars probably averaged something more than twenty-five dollars each. Small shippers paid two per cent. There were three stages a day each way, and I have seen the outgoing stages carry away a third of a ton of bullion each, and more than once I saw them divide a two-ton lot and take it off. However, these were extraordinary events. Mr. Valentine, Wells Fargo's agent, has handled all of the bullion shipped through the Virginia office for many a month. To his memory, which is excellent, we are indebted for the following exhibit of the company's business in the Virginia office since the 1st of January, 1862. From January 1st to April 1st, about $270,000 worth of bullion passed through that office. During the next quarter, $570,000. Next quarter, $800,000. Next quarter, $956,000. Next quarter, $1,275,000, and for the quarter ending on the 30th of last June, about $1,600,000. Thus, in a year and a half, the Virginia office only shipped $5,330,000 in bullion. During the year 1862, they shipped $2,615,000, so we perceive the average shipments have more than doubled in the last six months. This gives us room to promise for the Virginia office $500,000 a month for the year 1863, though perhaps judging by the steady increase in the business, we are underestimating somewhat. This gives us $6,000,000 for the year. Gold Hill and Silver City together can beat us. We will give them $10,000,000. To Dayton, Empire City, Ophir, and Carson City— we will allow an aggregate of eight million dollars, which is not over the mark, perhaps, and may possibly be a little under it. To Esmeralda we give four million dollars. To Reese River and Humboldt two million dollars, which is liberal now, but may not be before the year is out. So we prognosticate that the yield of bullion this year will be about thirty million dollars. Placing the number of mills in the territory at one hundred, this gives to each the labor of producing $300,000 in bullion during the twelve months. Allowing them to run 300 days in the year, which none of them more than do, this makes their work average $1,000 a day. Say the mills average 20 tons of rock a day, and this rock worth $50 as a general thing, and you have the actual work of our 100 mills figured down to a spot $1,000 a day each, and thirty million dollars a year in the aggregate. Enterprise. A considerable overestimate. M. T. Two tons of silver bullion would be in the neighborhood of forty bars, and the freight on it over one thousand dollars. Each coach always carried a deal of ordinary express matter beside, and also from fifteen to twenty passengers at from twenty-five dollars to thirty dollars a head. With six stages going all the time, Wells Fargo and Company's Virginia City business was important and lucrative. All along under the center of Virginia and Gold Hill, for a couple of miles ran the great Comstock Silver Lode, a vein of ore from fifty to eighty feet thick between its solid walls of rock, a vein as wide as some of New York's streets. I will remind the reader that in Pennsylvania a coal vein only eight feet wide is considered ample. 
Virginia was a busy city of streets and houses above ground. Under it was another busy city, down in the bowels of the earth, where a great population of men thronged in and out among the intricate maze of tunnels and drifts, flitting hither and thither under a winking sparkle of lights, and over their heads towered a vast web of interlocking timbers that held the walls of the gutted Comstock apart. These timbers were as large as a man's body, and the framework stretched upward so far that no eye could pierce to its top through the closing gloom. It was like peering up through the clean-picked ribs and bones of some colossal skeleton. Imagine such a framework two miles long, sixty feet wide, and higher than any church spire in America. Imagine this stately lattice-work stretching down Broadway from the St. Nicholas to Wall Street, and a Fourth of July procession reduced to pygmies, parading on top of it and flaunting their flags high above the pinnacle of Trinity Steeple. One can imagine that, but he cannot well imagine what that forest of timbers cost, from the time they were felled in the pineries beyond Washoe Lake, hauled up and around Mount Davidson, at atrocious rates of freightage, then squared, let down into the deep maw of the mine, and built up there. Twenty ample fortunes would not timber one of the greatest of those silver mines. The Spanish proverb says it requires a gold mine to run a silver one, and it is true. A beggar with a silver mine is a pitiable pauper indeed if he cannot sell. I spoke of the underground Virginia as a city. The Gould and Curry is only one single mine under there, among a great many others. Yet the Gould and Curry's streets of dismal drifts and tunnels were five miles in extent altogether, and its population five hundred miners. Taken as a whole, the underground city had some thirty miles of streets and a population of five or six thousand. In this present day some of those populations are at work from twelve to sixteen hundred feet under Virginia and Gold Hill, and the signal bells that tell them what the superintendent above ground desires them to do are struck by telegraph as we strike a fire alarm. Sometimes men fall down a shaft there a thousand feet deep. In such cases the usual plan is to hold an inquest. If you wish to visit one of those mines, you may walk through a tunnel about half a mile long if you prefer, or you may take the quicker plan of shooting like a dart down a shaft on a small platform. It is like tumbling down through an empty steeple feet first. When you reach the bottom, you take a candle, and tramp through drifts and tunnels where throngs of men are digging and blasting. You watch them send up tubs full of great lumps of stone, silver ore. You select choice specimens from the mass as souvenirs. You admire the world of skeleton timbering. You reflect frequently that you are buried under a mountain, a thousand feet below daylight. Being in the bottom of the mine, you climb from gallery to gallery, up endless ladders that stand straight up and down. When your legs fail you at last, you lie down in a small box-car in a cramped incline, like a half-upended sewer, and are dragged up to daylight feeling as if you are crawling through a coffin that has no end to it. Arrived at the top, you find a busy crowd of men receiving the ascending cars and tubs, and dumping the ore from an elevation into long rows of bins capable of holding half a dozen tons each. Under the bins are rows of wagons, loading from chutes and trap-doors in the bins, and down the long street is a procession of these wagons wending toward the silver mills with their rich freight. It is all done, now, and there you are. You need never go down again. 
for you have seen it all. If you have forgotten the process of reducing the ore in the mill and making the silver bars, you can go back and find it again in my Esmeralda chapters, if so disposed. Of course these mines cave in, in places, occasionally, and then it is worth one's while to take the risk of descending into them and observing the crushing power exerted by the pressing weight of a settling mountain. I published such an experience in the Enterprise once, and from it I will take an extract. AN HOUR IN THE CAVED MINES We journeyed down into the Ophir mine yesterday to see the earthquake. We could not go down the deep incline, because it still has a propensity to cave in places. Therefore we travelled through the long tunnel which enters the hill above the Ophir office, and then by means of a series of long ladders, climbed away down from the first to the fourth gallery. Traversing a drift we came to the Spanish line, past five sets of timbers still uninjured, and found the earthquake. Here was as complete a chaos as ever was seen, vast masses of earth and splintered and broken timbers piled confusedly together, with scarcely an aperture left large enough for a cat to creep through. Rubbish was still falling at intervals from above, and one timber which had braced others earlier in the day was now crushed down out of its former position, showing that the caving and settling of the tremendous mass was still going on. We were in that portion of the Ophir known as the North Mines. Returning to the surface, we entered a tunnel leading into the Central, for the purpose of getting into the main Ophir. Descending a long incline in this tunnel, we traversed a drift or so, and then went down a deep shaft from whence we proceeded into the fifth gallery of the Ophir. From a side drift we crawled through a small hole, and got into the midst of the earthquake again earth and broken timbers mingled together without regard to grace or symmetry. A large portion of the second, third, and fourth galleries had caved in and gone to destruction, the two latter at seven o'clock on the previous evening. At the turntable, near the northern extremity of the fifth gallery, two big piles of rubbish had forced their way through from the fifth gallery, and from the looks of the timbers more was about to come. These beams are solid eighteen inches square. First a great beam is laid on the floor, then upright ones, five feet high, stand on it, supporting another horizontal beam, and so on, square above square, like the framework of a window. The superincumbent weight was sufficient to mash the ends of those great upright beams fairly into solid wood of the horizontal ones three inches, compressing and bending the upright beam till it curved like a bow. Before the Spanish caved in, some of their twelve-inch horizontal timbers were compressed in this way until they were only five inches thick. Imagine the power it must take to squeeze a solid log together in that way. Here also was a range of timbers, for a distance of twenty feet, tilted six inches out of the perpendicular by the weight resting upon them from the caved galleries above. You could hear things cracking and giving way and it was not pleasant to know that the world overhead was slowly and silently sinking down upon you. The men down in the mine do not mind it, however. Returning along the fifth gallery, we struck the safe part of the Ophir incline, and went down into the sixth, but we found ten inches of water there, and had to come back. In repairing the damage done to the incline, the pump had to be stopped for two hours, and in the meantime the water gained about a foot. However, the pump was at work again, and the flood-water was decreasing. We climbed up to the fifth gallery again, and sought a deep shaft, whereby we might descend to another part of the sixth, out of reach of the water, 
but suffered disappointment, as the men had gone to dinner, and there was no one to man the windlass. So, having seen the earthquake, we climbed out at the Union incline and tunnel, and adjourned, all dripping with candle-grease and perspiration, to lunch at the Ophir office. During the great flush year of 1863, Nevada claims to have produced $25 million in bullion, almost, if not quite, a round million to each thousand inhabitants, which is very well, considering that she was without agriculture and manufactures. Silver mining was her sole productive industry. Since the above was in type, I learned from an official source that the above figure is too high, and that the yield for 1863 did not exceed twenty million dollars. However, the day for large figures is approaching. The Sutro Tunnel is to plow through the Comstock load from end to end at a depth of two thousand feet, and then mining will be easy and comparatively inexpensive, and the momentous matters of drainage, and hoisting and hauling of ore, will cease to be burdensome. This vast work will absorb many years, and millions of dollars, in its completion, but it will early yield money, for that desirable epoch will begin as soon as it strikes the first end of the vein. The tunnel will be some eight miles long, and will develop astonishing riches. Cars will carry the ore through the tunnel and dump it in the mills, and thus do away with the present costly system of double handling and transportation by mule teams. The water from the tunnel will furnish the motive power for the mills. Mr. Sutro, the originator of this prodigious enterprise, is one of the few men in the world who is gifted with the pluck and perseverance necessary to follow up and hound such an undertaking to its completion. He has converted several obstinate congresses to a deserved friendliness toward his important work, and has gone up and down and to and fro in Europe until he has enlisted a great moneyed interest in it there. End of chapter 52 This is Chapter 53 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 53 Every now and then in these days the boys used to tell me I ought to get one Jim Blaine to tell me the stirring story of his grandfather's old ram but they always added that I must not mention the matter unless Jim was drunk at the time, but just comfortably and sociably drunk. They kept this up until my curiosity was on the rack to hear the story. I got to haunting Blaine, but it was of no use. The boys always found fault with his condition. He was often moderately, but never satisfactorily drunk. I never watched a man's condition with such absorbing interest, such anxious solicitude. I never so pined to see a man uncompromisingly drunk before. At last, one evening, I hurried to his cabin, for I learned that this time his situation was such that even the most fastidious could find no fault with it. He was tranquilly, serenely, symmetrically drunk, not a hiccup to mar his voice, not a cloud upon his brain thick enough to obscure his memory. As I entered, he was sitting upon an empty powder-keg, with a clay pipe in one hand, and the other raised to command silence. His face was round, red, and very serious. His throat was bare, and his hair tumbled. In general appearance and costume he was a stalwart miner of the period. On the pine table stood a candle, 
and its dim light revealed the boys sitting here and there on bunks, candle-boxes, powder-kegs, etc. They said, "'Shh! Don't speak! He's going to commence!' <coughs> THE STORY OF THE OLD RAM I found a seat at once, and Blaine said, "'I don't reckon them times will ever come again. There never was a more bullier old ram than what he was. Grandfather fetched him from Illinois, and got him of a man by the name of Yates, Bill Yates. Maybe you might have heard of him. His father was a deacon, Baptist, and he was a rustler, too. A man had to get up rather early to get the start of old thankful Yates. It was him that put the greens up to jinin' teams with my grandfather when he moved west. Seth Green was probably the pick of the flock. He married a Wilkerson, Sarah Wilkerson, good creeter. She was. One of the likeliest heifers that was ever raised in old Stoddard. Everybody said that knowed her. She could heft a barrel of flour as easy as I could flirt a, a flapjack. And spin? Don't mention it. Independent? <laughs> when Sal Hawkins come a-browsin' around her, she let him know that for all his tin he couldn't trot in harness alongside of her. You see, Sile Hawkins was—no, it weren't Sile Hawkins, after all. It, it was a galoot by the name of Filkins. I disremember his first name, but he was a stump, coming to prior meeting drunk one night, hooraying for Nixon, because he thought it was a primary. And old Deacon Ferguson up and scooted him through the window, and he lit on old Miss Jefferson's head, poor old filly. She was a good soul, had a glass eye, and used to lend it to old Miss Wagner, that hadn't any, to receive company in. It weren't big enough, and Miss Wagner weren't noticin'. It would get twisted round in the socket, and look up, maybe, or out to one side, and every which way, while t'other one was looking as straight ahead as a spy-glass. Grown people didn't mind it, but it most always made the children cry, it was so sort of scary. She tried packing it in a raw cotton, but it wouldn't work somehow. The cotton would get loose and stick out and look so kind of awful that the children couldn't stand it no way. She was always dropping it out and turning it up her old dead light on the company empty and making them uncomfortable because she never could tell when it hopped out, being blind on that side, you see. So somebody would have to hunch her and say, Your game eye has fetched loose, Miss Wagner, dear. And then all of them would have to sit and wait till she jammed it in again. Wrong side before, as a general thing, and green as a bird's egg, being a bashful creeter and easy sot back before company. But being wrong side before weren't much difference anyway, because her own eye was sky blue, and the glass one was yaller on the front side, so whichever way she turned it didn't match nohow. Old Miss Wagner was considerable on the borrow she was. When she had a quiltin' or Dorcas society at her house, she generally borrowed Miss Higgins' wooden leg to stump round on. It was considerable shorter than her other pin, but much she minded that. She said she couldn't bide crutches when she had company, cause they were so slow. Said when she had company and things had to be done, she wanted to get up and hump herself. She was as bald as a jug, and so she used to borrow Miss Jacobs' wig. Miss Jacobs was the coffin peddler's wife. A ratty old buzzard he was, that used to go roostin' round where people was sick, waitin' for em, and there that old rip would sit all day in the shade on a coffin that he judged would fit the candidate, and if it was a slow customer and kind of uncertain, he'd fetch his rations and a blanket along and sleep in the coffin nights. 
he was anchored out that way in frosty weather for about three weeks once before old robinson's place waiting for him and after that for as much as two years jacobs was not on speaking terms with the old man on account of his disappointing him he got one of his feet froze and lost money too because old robbins took a favorable turn and got well the next time robbins got sick jacobs tried to make up with him and varnished up the same old coffin and fetched it along but old robbins was too many for him he had him in and appeared to be powerful weak he bought the coffin for ten dollars and jacobs was to pay it back and twenty-five more besides if robbins didn't like the coffin after he'd tried it and then robbins died and at the funeral he bursted off the lid and riz up in his shroud and told the parson to let up on the performances because he could not stand such a coffin as that you see he had been in a trance once before when he was young and he took the chances on another calculating that if he made the trip it was money in his pocket and if he missed fire uh, he couldn't lose a cent and by george he sued jacobs for the rhino and got judgment and he set up the coffin in his back parlor and said he allowed to take his time now it was always an aggravation to jacobs the way that miserable old thing acted he moved back to indiany pretty soon went to wellsville wellsville was the place the hogadorns was from mighty fine family old maryland stock old squire hogadorn could carry around more mixed liquor and cuss better than most any man i ever see his second wife was the widder billings she that was becky martin her dam was deacon dunlap's first wife her oldest child maria married a missionary and died in grace hit up by the savages they et him too per feller biled him it warn't the custom so they say but they explained to friends of his'n that went down there to bring away his things that they'd tried missionaries every other way and never could get any good out of them and so it annoyed all his relations to find out that that man's life was fooled away just out of a derned experiment so to speak but mind you there ain't anything ever really lost everything that people can't understand and don't see the reason of does good if you only hold on and give it a fair shake providence don't fire no blank cartridges boys that there missionary substance unbeknownst to himself actually converted every last one of them heathens that took a chance at the barbecue nothing ever fetched them but that don't tell me it was an accident that he was biled there ain't no such thing as an accident when my uncle lem was leaning up agin a scaffolding once sick or drunk or something an irishman with a hod full of bricks fell on him out of the third story and broke the old man's back in two places people said it was an accident <laughs> much accident there was about that he didn't know what he was there for, but he was there for a good object. If he hadn't been there, the Irishman would have been killed. Nobody can ever make me believe anything different from that. Uncle Lem's dog was there. Why didn't the Irishman fall on the dog? Because the dog would a seen him a-comin' and stood from under. That's the reason the dog warn't appointed. A dog can't be depended on to carry out a special providence. Mark my words, it was a put-up thing accidents don't happen boys uncle lem's dog i wish you could have seen that dog he was a regular shepherd or rather he was part bull and part shepherd splendid animal belonged to parson hagar before uncle lem got him parson hagar belonged to the western reserve hagar's prime family his mother was a watson one of his sisters married a wheeler they settled in morgan county and he got nipped by the machinery in a carpet factory and went through in less than a quarter of a minute 
His widder bought the piece of carpet that had his remains wove in it, and people come a hundred miles to tend the funeral. There was fourteen yards in the piece. She wouldn't let him roll him up, and planted him just so, full length. The church was middlin' small where they preached the funeral, and they had to let one end of the coffin stick out the window. They didn't bury him. They planted one end and let him stand up, same as a monument. And they nailed a sign on it and put, put on, put on it, sacred to the memory of fourteen yards of three-ply carpet containing all that was mortal of William We. Jim Blaine had been growing gradually drowsy and drowsier. His head nodded once, twice, three times, dropped peacefully upon his breast, and he fell tranquilly asleep. The tears were running down the boy's cheeks. They were suffocating with suppressed laughter, and had been from the start, though I had never noticed it. I perceived that I was sold. I learned then that Jim Blaine's peculiarity was that Whenever he reached a certain stage of intoxication, no human power could keep him from setting out, with impressive unction, to tell about a wonderful adventure which he had once had with his grandfather's old ram, and the mention of the ram in the first sentence was as far as any man had ever heard him get concerning it. He always maundered off, interminably, from one thing to another, till his whiskey got the best of him and he fell asleep. What the thing was that happened to him and his grandfather's old ram is a dark mystery to this day, for nobody has ever yet found out. End of chapter 53「This is chapter 54 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain Chapter 54 Of course there was a large Chinese population in Virginia. It is the case with every town and city on the Pacific coast. They are a harmless race when white men either let them alone or treat them no worse than dogs. In fact they are almost entirely harmless anyhow, for they seldom think of resenting the vilest insults or the cruelest injuries. They are quiet, peaceable, tractable, free from drunkenness, and they are as industrious as the day is long. A disorderly Chinaman is rare, and a lazy one does not exist. So long as a Chinaman has strength to use his hands, he needs no support from anybody. White men often complain of want of work, but a Chinaman offers no such complaint. He always manages to find something to do. He is a great convenience to everybody, even to the worst class of white men, for he bears the most of their sins, suffering fines for their petty thefts, imprisonment for their robberies, and death for their murders. Any white man can swear a Chinaman's life away in the courts, but no Chinaman can testify against a white man. Ours is the land of the free. Nobody denies that. Nobody challenges it. Maybe it is because we won't let other people testify. As I write, news comes that in broad daylight in San Francisco, some boys have stoned an inoffensive Chinaman to death, and that although a large crowd witnessed the shameful deed, no one interfered. 
there are seventy thousand and possibly one hundred thousand chinamen on the pacific coast there were about a thousand in virginia they were penned into a chinese quarter a thing which they do not particularly object to as they are fond of herding together their buildings were of wood usually only one story high and set thickly together along streets scarcely wide enough for a wagon to pass through their quarter was a little removed from the rest of the town the chief employment of chinamen in towns is to wash clothing they always send a bill like this below pinned to the clothes it is mere ceremony for it does not enlighten the customer much their price for washing was two dollars and fifty cents per dozen rather cheaper than white people could afford to wash for at that time a very common sign on the chinese houses was see yup washer and ironer hung wo washer sam sing and ah hop washing the house servants cooks etc in california nevada were chiefly chinamen there were few white servants and no china women so employed chinamen make good house servants being quick obedient patient quick to learn and tirelessly industrious they do not need to be taught a thing twice as a general thing they are imitative if a chinaman were to see his master break up a center table in a passion and kindle a fire with it that chinaman would be likely to resort to the furniture for fuel forever afterward all chinamen can read write and cipher with easy facility pity but all our petted voters could in california they rent little patches of ground and do a deal of gardening they will raise surprising crops of vegetables on a sand pile they waste nothing what is rubbish to a christian a chinaman carefully preserves and makes useful in one way or another he gathers up all the old oyster and sardine cans that white people throw away and procures marketable tin and solder from them by melting he gathers up old bones and turns them into manure in california he gets a living out of old mining claims that white men have abandoned as exhausted and worthless and then the officers come down on him once a month with an exorbitant swindle to which the legislature has given the broad general name of foreign mining tax but it is usually inflicted on no foreigners but chinamen this swindle has in some cases been repeated once or twice on the same victim in the course of the same month but the public treasury was not additionally enriched by it probably chinamen hold their dead in great reverence they worship their departed ancestors in fact hence in china a man's front yard back yard or any other part of his premises is made his family burying ground in order that he may visit the graves at any and all times therefore that huge empire is one mighty cemetery it is ridged and wrinkled from its centre to its circumference with graves and inasmuch as every foot of ground must be made to do its utmost in china lest the swarming population suffer for food the very graves are cultivated and yield a harvest custom holding this to be no dishonour to the dead since the departed are held in such worshipful reverence a chinaman cannot bear that any indignity be offered the places where they sleep mr burlingame said that herein lay china's bitter opposition to railroads a road could not be built anywhere in the empire without disturbing the graves of their ancestors or friends a chinaman hardly believes he could enjoy the hereafter except his body lay in his beloved china also he desires to receive himself after death that worship with which he has honored his dead that preceded him 
Therefore, if he visits a foreign country, he makes arrangements to have his bones returned to China in case he dies. If he hires to go to a foreign country on a labor contract, there is always a stipulation that his body shall be taken back to China if he dies. If the government sells a gang of coolies to a foreigner for the usual five-year term, it is specified in the contract that their bodies shall be restored to China in case of death. On the Pacific coast the Chinamen all belong to one or another of several great companies or organizations, and these companies keep track of their members, register their names, and ship their bodies home when they die. The Si Yup Company is held to be the largest of these. The Ning Yong Company is next, and numbers 18,000 members on the coast. Its headquarters are at San Francisco, where it has a costly temple, several great officers, one of whom keeps regal state in seclusion and cannot be approached by common humanity, and a numerous priesthood. In it I was shown a register of its members, with the dead and the date of their shipment to China duly marked. Every ship that sails from San Francisco carries away a heavy freight of Chinese corpses or did at least until the legislature with an ingenious refinement of christian cruelty forbade the shipments as a neat underhanded way of deterring chinese immigration the bill was offered whether it passed or not it is my impression that it passed there was another bill it became a law compelling every incoming chinaman to be vaccinated on the wharf and pay a duly appointed quack no decent doctor would defile himself with such legalized robbery ten dollars for it as few importers of Chinese would want to go to an expense like that, the lawmakers thought this would be another heavy blow to Chinese immigration. What the Chinese quarter of Virginia was like, or indeed what the Chinese quarter of any Pacific coast town was, and is like, may be gathered from this item, which I printed in the Enterprise while reporting for that paper. Chinatown. Accompanied by a fellow reporter, we made a trip through our Chinese quarter the other night. The Chinese have built their portion of the city to suit themselves, and as they keep neither carriages nor wagons, their streets are not wide enough, as a general thing, to admit the passage of vehicles. At ten o'clock at night the Chinaman may be seen in all his glory, in every little cooped-up dingy cavern of a hut, faint with the odor of burning josh lights, and with nothing to see the gloom by save the sickly guttering tallow candle, were two or three yellow, long-tailed vagabonds coiled up on a sort of short truckle-bed, smoking opium, motionless, and with their lusterless eyes turned inward from excess of satisfaction, or rather the recent smoker looks thus, immediately after having passed the pipe to his neighbor, for opium-smoking is a comfortless operation, and requires constant attention. A lamp sits on the bed, the length of the long pipe-stem from the smoker's mouth, he puts a pellet of opium on the end of a wire, sets it on fire, and plasters it into the pipe, much as a Christian would fill a hole with putty. Then he applies the bowl to the lamp, and proceeds to smoke. And the stewing and frying of the drug, and the gurgling of the juices in the stem, would well-nigh turn the stomach of a statue. John likes it, though. It soothes him. He takes about two dozen whiffs, and then rolls over to dream. Heaven knows what, for we could not imagine by looking at the soggy creature. Possibly in his visions he travels far away from the gross world and his regular washing, and feast on succulent rats and birds' nests in paradise. Mr. Ah Sing keeps a general grocery and provision store at number 13 Wang Street. 
He lavished his hospitality upon our party in the friendliest way. He had various kinds of colored and colorless wines and brandies, with unpronounceable names, imported from China in little crockery jugs, and which he offered to us in dainty little miniature wash-basins of porcelain. He offered us a mess of birds' nests, also small, neat sausages, of which we could have swallowed several yards if we had chosen to try, but we suspected that each link contained the corpse of a mouse, and therefore refrained. Mr. Singh had in his store a thousand articles of merchandise, curious to behold, impossible to imagine the uses of, and beyond our ability to describe. His ducks, however, and his eggs we could understand. The former were split open and flattened out like codfish, and came from China in that shape, and the latter were plastered over with some kind of paste, which kept them fresh and palatable through the long voyage. We found Mr. Hong Wo, number 37 Chow Chow Street, making up a lottery scheme. In fact, we found a dozen others occupied in the same way in various parts of the quarter, for about every third Chinaman runs a lottery, and the balance of the tribe buck at it. Tom, who speaks faultless English, and used to be chief and only cook to the territorial enterprise, when the establishment kept bachelor's halls two years ago, said that some time Chinaman buy ticket one dollar hap, catch em two tree hundred, some time no catch em anything, lottery like one man fight em seventy, maybe he whip, maybe he get whip, he self, welly good. However, the percentage being sixty-nine against him, the chances are, as a general thing, that he get whip he self. He could not see that these lotteries differed in any respect from our own, save that the figures being Chinese, no ignorant white man might ever hope to succeed in telling t'other from which. The manner of drawing is similar to ours. Mr. C. Yup keeps a fancy store on Live Fox Street. He sold us fans of white feathers, gorgeously ornamented perfumery that smelled like Limburger cheese, Chinese pens, and watch-charms made of a stone unscratchable with steel instruments, yet polished and tinted like the inner coat of a seashell. As tokens of his esteem, C. Yup presented the party with gaudy plumes made of gold tinsel and trimmed with peacock's feathers. We ate chow-chow with chopsticks in the celestial restaurants. Our comrade chided the moon-eyed damsels in front of the houses for their want of feminine reserve. We received protecting josh-lights from our hosts, and dickered for a pagan god or two. Finally we were impressed with the genius of a Chinese bookkeeper. He figured up his accounts on a machine like a gridiron with buttons strung on its bars. The different rows represented units, tens, hundreds, and thousands. He fingered them with incredible rapidity. In fact, he pushed them from place to place as fast as a musical professor's fingers travel over the keys of a piano. They are a kindly disposed, well-meaning race, and are respected and well-treated by the upper classes all over the Pacific coast. No Californian gentleman or lady ever abuses or oppresses a Chinaman, under any circumstances, an explanation that seems to be much needed in the East. Only the scum of the population do it they and their children, they and, naturally and consistently, the policemen and politicians, likewise, for these are the dust-licking pimps and slaves of the scum, there as well as elsewhere in America. End of chapter 54 This is chapter 55 of Roughing It. 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 55. I began to get tired of staying in one place so long. There was no longer satisfying variety in going down to Carson to report the proceedings of the legislature once a year, and horse-races and pumpkin-shows once in three months. They had to go raising pumpkins and potatoes in Washoe Valley, and, of course, one of the first achievements of the legislature was to institute a ten-thousand-dollar agricultural fair to show off forty dollars' worth of those pumpkins in. However, the territorial legislature was usually spoken of as the asylum. I wanted to see San Francisco. I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted—I did not know what I wanted. I had the spring fever, and wanted a change principally, no doubt. Besides, a convention had framed a state constitution. Nine men out of every ten wanted an office. I believed that these gentlemen would treat the moneyless and the irresponsible among the population into adopting the Constitution, and thus well-nigh killing the country. It could not well carry such a load as a state government, since it had nothing to tax that could stand a tax, for undeveloped minds could not, and there were not fifty developed ones in the land. There was but little realty to tax and it did seem as if nobody was ever going to think of the simple salvation of inflicting a money-penalty on murder. I believed that a state government would destroy the flush times, and I wanted to get away. I believed that the mining stocks I had on hand would soon be worth one hundred thousand dollars, and thought if they reached that before the Constitution was adopted, I would sell out and make myself secure from the crash the change of government was going to bring. I considered one hundred thousand dollars sufficient to go home with decently, though it was but a small amount compared to what I had been expecting to return with. I felt rather downhearted about it, but I tried to comfort myself with the reflection that with such a sum I could not fall into want. About this time a schoolmate of mine, whom I had not seen since boyhood, came tramping in on foot from the Reese River, a very allegory of poverty the son of wealthy parents, here he was, in a strange land, hungry, bootless, mantled in an ancient horse-blanket, roofed with a brimless hat, and so generally and so extravagantly dilapidated that he could have taken the shine out of the prodigal son himself, as he pleasantly remarked. He wanted to borrow forty-six dollars, twenty-six to take him to San Francisco, and twenty for something else, to buy some soap with, maybe, for he needed it. I found I had but little more than the amount wanted in my pocket, so I stepped in and borrowed forty-six dollars of a banker, on twenty days' time, without the formality of a note, and gave it him, rather than walk half a block to the office, where I had some specie laid up. If anybody had told me that it would take me two years to pay back that forty-six dollars to the banker, for I did not expect it of the prodigal, and was not disappointed, I would have felt injured and so would the banker. I wanted a change. I wanted variety of some kind. It came. Mr. Goodman went away for a week and left me the post of chief editor. It destroyed me. The first day I wrote my leader in the forenoon. The second day I had no subject and put it off till the afternoon. The third day I put it off till evening and then copied an elaborate editorial out of the American Cyclopedia, that steadfast friend of the editor, 
all over this land. The fourth day I fooled around till midnight, and then fell back on the cyclopedia again. The fifth day I cudgeled my brain till midnight, and then kept the press waiting while I penned some bitter personalities on six different people. The sixth day I labored in anguish till far into the night, and brought forth nothing. The paper went to press without an editorial. The seventh day I resigned. On the eighth, Mr. Goodman returned and found six duels on his hands. My personalities had borne fruit. Nobody, except he has tried it, knows what it is to be an editor. It is easy to scribble local rubbish. With the facts all before you, it is easy to clip selections from other papers. It is easy to string out a correspondence from any locality. But it is unspeakable hardship to write editorials. Subjects are the trouble. The dreary lack of them, I mean. Every day it is drag, drag, drag. Think and worry and suffer. All the world is a dull blank. And yet the editorial columns must be filled. Only give the editor a subject, and his work is done. It is no trouble to write it up. But fancy how you would feel if you had to pump your brains dry every day in the week, fifty-two weeks in the year. It makes one low-spirited simply to think of it. The matter that each editor of a daily paper in America writes in the course of a year would fill from four to eight bulky volumes like this book. Fancy what a library an editor's work would make after twenty or thirty years' service. Yet people often marvel that Dickens, Scott, Bulwer, Dumas, etc., have been able to produce so many books. If these authors had wrought as voluminously as newspaper editors do, the result would be something to marvel at indeed. How editors can continue this tremendous labor, this exhausting consumption of brain fiber, for their work is creative and not a mere mechanical laying up of facts like reporting, day after day and year after year is incomprehensible. Preachers take two months' holiday in midsummer, for they find that to produce two sermons a week is wearing in the long run. In truth it must be so, and is so, and therefore how an editor can take from ten to twenty texts and build upon them from ten to twenty painstaking editorials a week, and keep it up all the year round, is farther beyond comprehension than ever. Ever since I survived my week as editor, I have found at least one pleasure in any newspaper that comes to my hand. It is in admiring the long columns of editorial, and wondering to myself how in the mischief he did it. Mr. Goodman's return relieved me of employment, unless I chose to become a reporter again. I could not do that. I could not serve in the ranks after being general of the army. So I thought I would depart and go abroad into the world somewhere. Just at this juncture Dan, my associate in the repertorial department, told me, casually, that two citizens had been trying to persuade him to go with them to New York and aid in selling a rich silver mine which they had discovered and secured in a new mining district in our neighborhood. He said they offered to pay his expenses and give him one-third of the proceeds of the sale. He had refused to go. It was the very opportunity I wanted. I abused him for keeping so quiet about it and not mentioning it sooner. He said it had not occurred to him that I would like to go, and so he had recommended them to apply to Marshall, the reporter of the other paper. I asked Dan if it was a good, honest mine and no swindle. He said the men had shown him nine tons of the rock, which they had got out to take to New York, and he could cheerfully say that he had seen but little rock in Nevada that was richer, and, moreover, 
He said that they had secured a tract of valuable timber and a mill site near the mine. My first idea was to kill Dan, but I changed my mind, notwithstanding I was so angry, for I thought maybe the chance was not yet lost. Dan said it was by no means lost, that the men were absent at the mine again, and would not be in Virginia to leave for the East for some ten days, that they had requested him to do the talking to Marshall, and he had promised that he would either secure Marshall or somebody else for them by the time they got back. He would now say nothing to anybody till they returned, and then fulfill his promise by furnishing me to them. It was splendid. I went to bed all on fire with excitement, for nobody had yet gone east to sell a Nevada silver mine, and the field was white for the sickle. I felt that such a mine as the one described by Dan would bring a princely sum in New York, and sell without delay or difficulty. I could not sleep, my fancy so rioted through its castles in the air. It was the blind lead come again. Next day I got away on the coach, with the usual eclat attending departures of old citizens, for if you have only half a dozen friends out there, they will make noise for a hundred, rather than let you seem to go away neglected and unregretted, and Dan promised to keep strict watch for the men that had the mind to sell. The trip was signalized, but by one little incident, and that occurred just as we were about to start. A very seedy-looking vagabond passenger got out of the stage a moment to wait till the usual ballast of silver bricks was thrown in. He was standing on the pavement when an awkward express employee carrying a brick weighing a hundred pounds stumbled and let it fall on the bummer's foot. He instantly dropped on the ground and began to howl in the most heart-breaking way. A sympathizing crowd gathered around, and were going to pull his boot off, but he screamed louder than ever, and they desisted. Then he fell to gasping, and between the gasps ejaculated, Brandy! For heaven's sakes, brandy! They poured half a pint down him, and it wonderfully restored and comforted him. Then he begged the people to assist him to the stage, which was done. The express people urged him to have a doctor at their expense, but he declined, and said that if he only had a little brandy to take along with him to soothe his paroxysms of pain when they came on, he would be grateful and content. He was quickly supplied with two bottles, and we drove off. He was so smiling and happy after that that I could not refrain from asking him how he could possibly be so comfortable with a crushed foot. Well, he said, I hadn't had a drink for twelve hours, and hadn't a cent to my name. I was most perishing, and so when that duffer dropped that hundred-pounder on my foot, I see my chance. Got a cork leg, you know. And he pulled up his pantaloons and proved it. He was as drunk as a lord all day long, and full of chucklings over his timely ingenuity. One drunken man necessarily reminds one of another. I once heard a gentleman tell about an incident which he witnessed in a Californian bar-room. He entitled it, Ye Modest Man Taketh a Drink. It was nothing but a bit of acting, but it seemed to me a perfect rendering, and worthy of Toodles himself. The modest man, tolerably far gone with beer and other matters, enters a saloon. Twenty-five cents is the price for anything and everything, and specie the only money used, and lays down half a dollar, calls for whiskey and drinks it. The barkeeper makes change and lays the quarter in a wet place on the counter. The modest man fumbles at it with nerveless fingers, but it slips, and the water holds it. He contemplates it, and tries again. Same result. Observes that people are interested in what he is at, and blushes. Fumbles at the quarter again, blushes, 
puts his forefinger carefully, slowly down, to make sure of his aim, pushes the coin toward the barkeeper, and says, with a sigh, <laughs> "'Give me a cigar!' Naturally, another gentleman present told about another drunken man. He said he reeled toward home late at night, made a mistake, and entered the wrong gate. Thought he saw a dog on the stoop, and it was an iron one. He stopped and considered, wondered if it was a dangerous dog, ventured to say, "'Be begone!' No effect. Then he approached warily, and adopted conciliation, pursed up his lips and tried to whistle, but failed, still approached, saying, "'Poor dog! Doggy, doggy, doggy! Poor doggy dog!' Got up on the stoop, still petting with fond names, till master of the advantages, then exclaimed, "'Leave, you thief!' planted a vindictive kick in his ribs, and went head over heels overboard, of course. A pause, a sigh or two of pain, and then a remark in a reflective voice, "'Awful solid dog! What could he been eating? <laughs> Rocks, perhaps. Such animals is dangerous.' "'That's what I say. They're dangerous. If a man—' <laughs> If a man wants to feed a dog on rocks, let him feed him on rocks. It's all right. But let him keep him at home, not have him laying round promiscuous, where where people's liable to stumble over him when they ain't noticing. It was not without regret that I took a last look at the tiny flag. It was thirty-five feet long and ten feet wide, fluttering like a lady's handkerchief from the topmost peak of Mount Davidson, two thousand feet above Virginia's roofs, and felt that doubtless I was bidding a permanent farewell to a city which had afforded me the most vigorous enjoyment of life I had ever experienced. And this reminds me of an incident which the dullest memory Virginia could boast at the time it happened must vividly recall, at times, till its possessor dies. Late one summer afternoon, we had a rain-shower. That was astonishing enough in itself to set the whole town buzzing, for it only rains, during a week or two weeks, in the winter in Nevada, and even then not enough at a time to make it worth while for any merchant to keep umbrellas for sale. But the rain was not the chief wonder. It only lasted five or ten minutes. While the people were still talking about it, all the heavens gathered to themselves a dense blackness as of midnight. All the vast eastern front of Mount Davidson, overlooking the city, put on such a funereal gloom that only the nearness and solidity of the mountain made its outlines even faintly distinguishable from the dead blackness of the heavens they rested against. This unaccustomed sight turned all eyes toward the mountain, and as they looked, a little tongue of rich golden flame was seen waving and quivering in the heart of the midnight, way up on the extreme summit. In a few minutes the streets were packed with people, gazing with hardly an uttered word at the one brilliant mote in the brooding world of darkness. It flicked like a candle-flame, and looked no larger, but with such a background it was wonderfully bright, small as it was. It was the flag, though no one suspected at first. It seemed so like a supernatural visitor of some kind, a mysterious messenger of good tidings, some were fain to believe. It was the nation's emblem, transfigured by the departing rays of a sun that was entirely palled from view, and on no other object did the glory fall, in all the broad panorama of mountain ranges and deserts, not even upon the staff of the flag, for that, a needle in the distance at any time, was now untouched by the light and undistinguishable in the gloom. 
For a whole hour the weird visitor winked and burned in its lofty solitude, and still the thousands of uplifted eyes watched it with fascinated interest. How the people were wrought up! The superstition grew apace that this was a mystic courier come with great news from the war, the poetry of the idea excusing and commending it, and on it spread, from heart to heart, from lip to lip, and from street to street, till there was a general impulse to have out the military and welcome the bright waif with a salvo of artillery. And all that time one sorely tried man, the telegraph operator, sworn to official secrecy, had to lock his lips and chain his tongue with a silence that was like to rend them, for he, and he only, of all the speculating multitude, knew the great things this sinking sun had seen that day in the east, Vicksburg fallen, and the Union arms victorious at Gettysburg. But for the journalistic monopoly that forbade the slightest revealment of Eastern news till a day after its publication in the California papers, the glorified flag on Mount Davidson would have been saluted and re-saluted that memorable evening, as long as there was a charge of powder to thunder with. The city would have been illuminated, and every man that had any respect for himself would have got drunk, as was the custom of the country on all occasions of public moment. Even at this distant day I cannot think of this needlessly marred supreme opportunity without regret. What a time we might have had! End of chapter 55This is chapter 56 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 56. We rumbled over the plains and valleys, climbed the Sierras to the clouds, and looked down upon summer-clad California. I will remark here, in passing, that all scenery in California requires distance to give it its highest charm. The mountains are imposing in their sublimity and their majesty of form and altitude, from any point of view, but one must have distance to soften their ruggedness and enrich their tintings. A Californian forest is best at a little distance, for there is a sad poverty of variety in species, the trees being chiefly of one monotonous family, redwood, pine, spruce, fir, and so, at a nearer view, there is a wearisome sameness of attitude in their rigid arms, stretched downward and outward in one continued and reiterated appeal to all men to, shh, don't say a word, you might disturb somebody. Close at hand, too, there is a reliefless and relentless smell of pitch and turpentine, there is a ceaseless melancholy in their sighing and complaining foliage. One walks over a soundless carpet of beaten yellow bark and dead spines of the foliage till he feels like a wandering spirit bereft of a footfall. He tires of the endless tufts of needles and yearns for substantial shapely leaves. He looks for moss and grass to loll upon, and finds none. For where there is no bark there is naked clay and dirt enemies to pensive musing and clean apparel. Often a grassy plain in California is what it should be, but often, too, it is best contemplated at a distance, because although its grass blades are tall, they stand up vindictively straight and self-sufficient, and are unsociably wide apart, 
with uncomely spots of barren sand between. One of the queerest things I know of is to hear tourists from the States go into ecstasies over the loveliness of ever-blooming California, and they always do go into that sort of ecstasies, but perhaps they would modify them if they knew how old Californians, with the memory full upon them of the dust-covered and questionable summer greens of Californian verdure, stand astonished and filled with worshipping admiration in the presence of the lavish richness, the brilliant green, the infinite freshness, the spendthrift variety of form and species and foliage that make an eastern landscape a vision of paradise itself. The idea of a man falling into raptures over grave and somber California, when that man has seen New England's meadow expanses and her maples, oaks, and cathedral-windowed elms decked in summer attire, or the opaline splendors of autumn descending upon her forests, comes very near being funny. Would be, in fact, but that it is so pathetic. No land with an unvarying climate can be very beautiful. The tropics are not, for all the sentiment that is wasted on them. They seem beautiful at first, but sameness impairs the charm by and by. Change is the handmaiden nature requires to do her miracles with. The land that has four well-defined seasons cannot lack beauty, or pall with monotony. Each season brings a world of enjoyment and interest in the watching of its unfolding, its gradual harmonious development, its culminating graces, and just as one begins to tire of it, it passes away, and a radical change comes with new witcheries and new glories in its train. And, I think, to one in sympathy with nature, each season, in its turn, seems the loveliest. San Francisco, a truly fascinating city to live in, is stately and handsome at a fair distance. But, close at hand, one notes that the architecture is mostly old-fashioned. Many streets are made up of decaying, smoke-grimed wooden houses, and the barren sand-hills toward the outskirts obtrude themselves too prominently. Even the kindly climate is sometimes pleasanter when read about than personally experienced, for a lovely cloudless sky wears out its welcome by and by, and then, when the longed-for rain does come, it stays. Even the playful earthquake is better contemplated at a dist— However, there are varying opinions about that. The climate of San Francisco is mild and singularly equable. The thermometer stands at about seventy degrees the year round. It hardly changes at all. You sleep under one or two light blankets summer and winter, and never use a mosquito-bar. Nobody ever wears summer clothing. You wear black broadcloth, if you have it, in August and January, just the same. It is no colder and no warmer in the one month than the other. You do not use overcoats, and you do not use fans. It is as pleasant a climate as could well be contrived, take it all around, and is doubtless the most unvarying in the whole world. The wind blows there a good deal in the summer months, but then you can go over to Oakland if you choose, three or four miles away. It does not blow there. It has only snowed twice in San Francisco in nineteen years, and then it only remained on the ground long enough to astonish the children, and set them to wondering what the feathery stuff was. During eight months of the year, straight along, the skies are bright and cloudless, and never a drop of rain falls. But when the other four months come along, 
you will need to go and steal an umbrella, because you will require it. Not just one day, but one hundred and twenty days in hardly varying succession. When you want to go visiting, or attend church, or the theatre, you never look up at the clouds to see whether it is likely to rain or not. You look at the almanac. If it is winter, it will rain. And if it is summer, it won't rain, and you cannot help it. You never need a lightning rod, because it never thunders, and it never lightens. And, after you have listened for six or eight weeks every night to the dismal monotony of those quiet rains, you will wish in your heart the thunder would leap and crash and roar along those drowsy skies once, and make everything alive. You will wish the prisoned lightnings would cleave the dull firmament asunder, and light it with a blinding glare for one little instant. You would give anything to hear the old familiar thunder again, and see the lightning strike somebody. And, along in the summer, when you have suffered about four months of lustrous, pitiless sunshine, you are ready to go down on your knees and plead for rain, hail, snow, thunder and lightning, anything to break the monotony. You will take an earthquake if you cannot do any better, and the chances are that you'll get it, too. San Francisco is built on sand hills, but they are prolific sand hills. They yield a generous vegetation. All the rare flowers which people in the States rear with such patient care in parlor flower-pots and greenhouses flourish luxuriantly in the open air there all the year round. Kaya lilies, all sorts of geraniums, passion-flowers, moss-roses, I do not know the names of a tenth part of them. I only know that while New Yorkers are burdened with banks and drifts of snow, Californians are burdened with banks and drifts of flowers if they only keep their hands off and let them grow. And I have heard that they have also that rarest and most curious of all the flowers, the beautiful Espiritu Santo, as the Spaniards call it, or Flower of the Holy Spirit, though I thought it grew only in Central America, down on the isthmus. In its cup is the daintiest little facsimile of a dove as pure as snow. The Spaniards have a superstitious reverence for it. The blossom has been conveyed to the States, submerged in ether, and the bulb has been taken thither also, but every attempt to make it bloom after it arrived has failed. I have elsewhere spoken of the endless winter of Mono, California, and but this moment of the eternal spring of San Francisco. Now, if we travel a hundred miles in a straight line, we come to the eternal summer of Sacramento. One never sees summer clothing or mosquitoes in San Francisco, but they can be found in Sacramento. Not always, and unvaryingly, but about one hundred and forty-three months out of twelve years, perhaps. Flowers bloom there, always, the reader can easily believe. People suffer and sweat and swear morning, noon, and night, and wear out their staunchest energies fanning themselves. It gets hot there, but if you go down to Fort Yuma, you will find it hotter. Fort Yuma is probably the hottest place on earth. The thermometer stays at one hundred and twenty in the shade there all the time, except when it varies and goes higher. It is a U.S. military post, and its occupants get so used to the terrific heat that they suffer without it. There is a tradition, attributed to John Phoenix, it has been purloined by fifty different scribblers who were too poor to invent a fancy but not ashamed to steal one. M.T that a very, very wicked soldier died there once, and, of course, went straight to the hottest corner of perdition, and the next day he telegraphed back for his blankets. 
There is no doubt about the truth of this statement. There can be no doubt about it. I have seen the place where that soldier used to board. In Sacramento it is fiery summer always, and you can gather roses and eat strawberries and ice-cream and wear white linen clothes and pant and perspire at eight or nine o'clock in the morning, and then take the cars and at noon put on your furs and your skates and go skimming over frozen Donner Lake seven thousand feet above the valley, among snow-banks fifteen feet deep, and in the shadow of grand mountain-peaks that lift their frosty crags ten thousand feet above the level of the sea. There is a transition for you. Where will you find another like it in the western hemisphere? And some of us have swept around snow-walled curves of the Pacific Railroad in that vicinity six thousand feet above the sea, and looked down, as the birds do, upon the deathless summer of the Sacramento Valley, with its fruitful fields, its feathery foliage, its silver streams, all slumbering in the mellow haze of its enchanted atmosphere, and all infinitely softened and spiritualized by distance. A dreamy, exquisite glimpse of fairyland, made all the more charming and striking that it was caught through a forbidden gateway of ice and snow, and savage crags and precipices. End of chapter 56 This is chapter 57 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 57 It was in this Sacramento Valley, just referred to, that a deal of the most lucrative of the early gold mining was done, and you may still see, in places, its grassy slopes and levels torn and guttered and disfigured by the avaricious spoilers of fifteen and twenty years ago. You may see such disfigurements far and wide over California, and in some such places where only meadows and forests are visible, not a living creature, not a house, no stick or stone or remnant of a ruin, and not a sound, not even a whisper, to disturb the Sabbath stillness you will find it hard to believe that there stood at one time a fiercely flourishing little city of two thousand or three thousand souls with its newspaper fire company brass band volunteer militia bank hotels noisy fourth of july processions and speeches gambling hells crammed with tobacco smoke profanity and rough-bearded men of all nations and colors with tables heaped with gold dust sufficient for the revenues of a german principality streets crowded and rife with business town lots worth four hundred dollars a front foot labor laughter music dancing swearing fighting shooting stabbing a bloody inquest and a man for breakfast every morning everything that delights and adorns existence all the appointments and appurtenances of a thriving and prosperous and promising young city and now nothing is left of it all but a lifeless homeless solitude the men are gone the houses have vanished even the name of the place is forgotten in no other land in modern times have towns so absolutely died and disappeared as in the old mining regions of california it was a driving, vigorous, restless population in those days. 
It was a curious population. It was the only population of the kind that the world has ever seen gathered together, and it is not likely that the world will ever see its like again. For, observe, it was an assemblage of two hundred thousand young men, not simpering, dainty, kid-gloved weaklings, but stalwart, muscular, dauntless young braves, brimful of push and energy, and royally endowed with every attribute that goes to make up a peerless and magnificent manhood, the very pick and choice of the world's glorious ones. No women, no children, no gray and stooping veterans, none but erect, bright-eyed, quick-moving, strong-handed young giants, the strangest population, the finest population, the most gallant host that ever trooped down the startled solitudes of an unpeopled land. And where are they now? scattered to the ends of the earth, or prematurely aged and decrepit, or shot or stabbed in street affrays, or dead of disappointed hopes and broken hearts, all gone, or nearly all, victims devoted upon the altar of the golden calf, the noblest holocaust that ever wafted its sacrificial incense heavenward. It is pitiful to think upon. It was a splendid population, for all the slow, sleepy, sluggish-brained sloths stayed at home. Eh, you never find that sort of people among pioneers. You cannot build pioneers out of that sort of material. It was that population that gave to California a name for getting up astounding enterprises, and rushing them through with a magnificent dash and daring, and a recklessness of cost or consequences, which she bears unto this day and when she projects a new surprise, the grave world smiles as usual and says, Well, that is California all over. But they were rough in those times. They fairly reveled in gold, whiskey, fights, and fandangos, and were unspeakably happy. The honest miner raked from a hundred to a thousand dollars out of his claim a day, and what with the gambling dens and the other entertainments, he hadn't a cent the next morning, if he had any sort of luck. They cooked their own bacon and beans, sewed on their own buttons, washed their own shirts, blue woolen ones, and if a man wanted a fight on his hands without any annoying delay, all he had to do was to appear in public in a white shirt or a stove-pipe hat, and he would be accommodated. For those people hated aristocrats. They had a particular and malignant animosity toward what they called a biled shirt. It was a wild, free, disorderly, grotesque society. Men, only swarming hosts of stalwart men, nothing juvenile, nothing feminine, visible anywhere. In those days miners would flock in crowds to catch a glimpse of that rare and blessed spectacle, a woman. Old inhabitants tell how, in a certain camp, the news went abroad early in the morning that a woman was come. They had seen a calico dress hanging out of a wagon down at the camping-ground, sign of emigrants from over the Great Plains. Everybody went down there, and a shout went up when an actual bona fide dress was discovered fluttering in the wind. The male emigrant was visible. The miners said, "'Fetch her out!' He said, "'It is my wife, gentlemen. She is sick. We have been robbed of money, provisions, everything, by the Indians. We want to rest. Fetch her out! We've got to see her! But, gentlemen, the poor thing, she—' "'Fetch her out!' He fetched her out, and they swung their hats and sent up three rousing cheers and a tiger, and they crowded around and gazed at her and touched her dress, 
and listened to her voice with the look of men who listened to a memory, rather than a present reality, and then they collected twenty-five hundred dollars in gold, and gave it to the man, and swung their hats again, and gave three more cheers, and went home satisfied. Once I dined in San Francisco with the family of a pioneer, and talked with his daughter, a young lady whose first experience in San Francisco was an adventure, though she herself did not remember it, as she was only two or three years old at the time. Her father said that after landing from the ship they were walking up the street, a servant leading the party with the little girl in her arms, and presently a huge miner, bearded, belted, spurred, and bristling with deadly weapons, just down from a long campaign in the mountains, evidently barred the way, stopped the servant, and stood gazing, with a face all alive with gratification and astonishment. And then he said reverently, "'Well, if it ain't a child!' And then he snatched a little leather sack out of his pocket and said to the servant, "'There's a hundred and fifty dollars in dust there, and I'll give it to you to let me kiss the child.' That anecdote is true. But see how things change. Sitting at that dinner-table, listening to that anecdote, if I had offered double the money for the privilege of kissing the same child, I would have been refused. Seventeen added years have far more than doubled the price. And, while upon this subject, I will remark that once in Star City, in the Humboldt Mountains, I took my place in a sort of long post-office single file of miners, to patiently await my chance to peep through a crack in the cabin, and get a sight of the splendid new sensation, a genuine live woman. And at the end of half an hour my turn came, and I put my eye to the crack, and there she was, with one arm akimbo, and tossing flapjacks in a frying-pan with the other. And she was one hundred and sixty-five. Being in calmer mood now, I voluntarily knock off a hundred from that. M. T. Years old, and hadn't a tooth in her head. End of chapter 57 Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.